Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking extreme bullying. We're talking absent parents. And we're talking hunting for men in the underpass. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking extreme bullies getting extremely ripped apart in an extreme pool. Oh my god, it's honestly <laughs> one of my favorite scenes in all of horror. I love it. It, it. it is real good. Although, Joe, I mean, like, full confession, I, I get the artistry behind the scene and why we mm -hmm. don't see a lot of it, but mm -hmm. isn't the little gay boy inside of you like, I want to see these fuckers, like the fear <laughs> in their faces as they get ripped apart? Oh, I don't know. There is something so satisfying about just seeing a head pop into a pool and thinking, oh, I don't need to see it because I can imagine it and it is hella satisfying. Yeah, but I want to see their of faces. <laughs> anyway, but, but, but that, that's going to remove all the artistry from the film. So everyone, right. we are discussing Let the Right One In. Of course, the uh, the adaptation of the book, not the American remake. We are doing the Swedish original and for good fucking reason, because it is awesome. It is, and we're not going to come down hard on the American remake no. because I have rewatched this recently, in fact, because uh, gentle plug, in case people don't know, I have a YA podcast, <laughs> and because this is an adaptation, I just covered it on that. So folks, if you want to hear a little bit more background about the book and also the American film, you can go and listen to that. But uh, I will say this is easily one of the best american remakes of a foreign horror film now a question hey you're a better man than I. I could not be doing fucking like book adaptation american remake of adaptation all this shit and mm -hmm. did you plan these to be like, oh 100 okay. because i was like i don't want to have to rewatch these movies or try to read this book and remember it in six months that's fair <laughs> that's totally fair but you know what in case you did forget things why don't we bring in our guests so yes. everyone you may know them as the host of the beauty of horror a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found in the horror genre you may have also read their work at morbidly beautiful we are horror and film cred please welcome chandler bullock Thank you. What a wonderful little intro. You even got my whole uh, description of my podcast. I appreciate that. Thank you. I know. <laughs> got to tell people, if people just say, oh, he's from, he does the beauty of horror, then what, 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 what is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but you, you nailed it. You said it exactly. And it's so nice to hear somebody else say it for once instead of my voice. So thank <sighs> you. Tracy. You're so welcome. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but also, we should note that Bo Trace and I have guest starred on your podcast Correct. because it is that amazing. So. Oh. Yeah, Trace got to talk about a really horrifying film, Dead Girl. <laughs> Dead Girl. <laughs> and then I got to talk about a beautifully amazing film, which is Don't Look Now. I, I was like, I, I feel like I know the answer to this one. I, of course it's Don't Look Now, um, mm -hmm. the movie that I still have not seen. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah, come on. No. Yeah, yeah. He's never in the right mood. But okay, but, okay. Even without having seen it, both of you can agree that you probably have to be in a certain mood to watch Don't Look Now. Well, no. Trace, I watched it on a train, so I can't really say that with confidence. <laughs> <in the point. laughs> 
I, I, I just want it to be a thing where I don't feel like it's work, where I'm just like, you know what? I am going to sit down and bask in the glory of this movie. Mm. I, okay, let's try one thing, and then we'll get back to Let the Right One In. Yes, That's what people yes. have actually tuned in for. Trace, it has one of the most sexually explicit sex scenes in yes. all of film history. Shouldn't that enough? That's I, enough of a sell for you. Look, mm-hmm. I, I, know, I know the movie's all about themes and the color red and guilt and murder and sex and whatever, but I, I think it's because I know the ending and I'm like, I just don't want to sit through two hours when Fair. I know what happens at the very end. Oh, the, the end to <laughs> me is almost the least important thing. It's <laughs> just kind of the like, oh, and I'm going to kick you in the face now that you're already down. That's, That's all that is to yep. me. That's fair. Well, okay. So a movie we've all seen that uh, we all really <laughs> like <laughs> is Let the Right Win. And Chandler, you, you really, really wanted to come on to this, this episode for this mm-hmm. film specifically. Why is that? Well, uh, so a while back, I think it was Podcast of the Damned to put out a tweet of asking, like, what are your top five vampire movies? Mm-hmm. And I had Let the Right One In as number one. And I remember Joe kind of responding to that almost immediately <laughs> about like, oh, you don't say. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, when I heard that the opportunity to talk about this on your show was was, was opening, I mean, I had to jump on it, right? It is my number one vampire movie for a reason. Uh, so back when this came out in 2008, I was very impressionable. I think, let's see, I was roughly around 22 or something like that in a foreign country, kind of getting hmm. used to being around just an environment I wasn't really used to. And then I see this kid who I could really relate to just, you know, granted he's a 12 year old and I was a 22 year old, but <laughs> I uh, just, I, it got a lot of flashbacks from my own home and to see it like a Swedish film doing that. It's just incredible to me. And I also felt at the time that vampire movies were kind of, I don't know, they just Stale. weren't doing it right yeah. anymore for my feeling. Oh, I mean, 30 days a night was really cool, but hmm. all in all, I, it was a little played out. So to have something so refreshing like that just really piqued my interest. And in the movie that we got, I think it just stuck with me since I saw it. And uh, yeah, yeah, I've seen it many, many times since, uh, multiple versions, and uh, it just sticks with me. I love this movie. Did you see it in theater? Actually, I'm sorry, question first. So are, are, you, right. are you from Sweden? Oh, no, no. See, I am from Mississippi. <laughs> but uh, I moved to the Netherlands in 2005 live there now i'm currently physically in wisconsin visiting family Mm -hmm. but i live in amsterdam normally and so yeah i was overseas when the film came out so i think i might have even seen it maybe a little sooner because it might have released sooner for us yeah right but or it could have been later i'm not too sure anymore just because i know that movies don't get the english subtitles until way later well and apparently this one the dvd release had like a simplified uh version of subtitles and people complained Mm -hmm. about it until they redid them but and sorry this is getting a personal for you but so what may i ask what brought you to the netherlands uh what brought me to the netherlands was a a previous relationship had an online relationship that i met through uh vampire role play of all things on the internet so a vampire the masquerade is what we were doing (laughs) and uh i was way way underage to be doing that in those chat rooms but uh you know it was uh, it was late two thousand, early two thousands, even. So you know, you were uh, doing things at the age of fifteen, uh, yeah. <laughs> just getting to know people. And then when I hit eighteen, decided to visit over here, and we hit it off. So I stayed, and yeah, that, that's kind of history. I mean, life has changed since then, but I, I stayed no matter what kind of punches were thrown at me. Oh my god, I'm tangenting again. But did y'all ever? <laughs> I, I, I know that Chandler just admitted to this, but like Joe, did you ever do like um, when you were a teen, like gay chats when you were a teen? 
No, absolutely not. I had a family computer in the living room and I could not risk it. So I barely even delved into gay corners of the internet until I went to university. (laughs) Oh my God. I I frequented for about a year this one. I think it was called 123gayteenchat.com. And what a name. Probably talked to a very high number of pedophiles because one day that that website was gone. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. FBI crackdown. (laughs) Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. AOL was also really ripe for that at the time, too. Ooh, mm-hmm. yeah. But it was like, you know, like, I'm talking to other gays who might know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. You were. It's just that you were probably talking to hacking equivalents, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, no, anyway, so I'm going back. I just wanted to, I just wanted to see if, I don't know, if, if there was a, I don't know, you have like a Swedish love or connection that brought, no. that brought you further into this movie. Not at all. I, I think, I, I don't even know if I've been to Sweden. I've been to like Norway. I, I don't even have Swedish friends, like Finnish friends, Danish friends. I don't think I've met anybody from Sweden actually mm-hmm. in the area. But it's just you know, foreign films in Europe are going to get distributed a lot more freely within Europe than you're going to yeah. get out, you know, overseas. So mm-hmm. when this one was being released, and me, me being a horror fan, having other horror friends who were like, "I've read the book. You should watch the film." Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't not, you know. Yeah. Well, I think there's something so universal about this film. Like, it's a movie about a pair of outcasts who come together, and we're going to have yeah. conversations about whether this film is romantic or tragic or Oof. both. But at the end of the day, I remember the first time I saw it, I definitely connected to Oscar with all of the bullying stuff, right. all of the yeah. having interests that fall outside of the norm. You know, I don't have a, a murder handbook or anything where I was collecting <laughs> newspaper clippings, but... I think one of the things that I so strongly connect to in this film is just Oscar is a weird fucking little kid. And I was a weird fucking little kid. And it's hard to be like that out in the world. And swap out murder book for just an interest in horror, the horror genre. Sure. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think that's something too. I mean, like, it's interesting. You don't see this film show up on a lot of lists of queer horror, which is interesting wow. to me because it is yeah. <laughs> queer horror. well i think that there are more obvious choices i think when people start to talk about this movie if people hadn't thought of it as queer horror they immediately go oh um, okay uh-huh. yeah but it's sly right there's blink and you miss it kind of trans obviousness in Mm -hmm. this movie Mm -hmm. but i think a lot of people choose to just deliberately overlook it and say oh it's a child vampire movie i mean that's also not like forget the fact that just transphobia within queer discourse is still quite strong so it's it's not surprising to me to have a a film with such a trans character in it getting a little omitted from that designation but uh yeah I mean, the movie, it also, it's just the lived experience as well. Like you said, these outcasts, I think that's where it is. Yeah. The, the sexuality may not be as explored on the surface, but, mm-hmm. you know, you, you asked a question recently about what constitutes a queer horror yeah. film. And I think this is a movie that really uh, <laughs> taps into that debate a bit. Fun fact, everything is queer horror. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Also, the people who responded and clearly were listing films that we have covered and then asking is this queer horror i'm just like oh do you follow us and not even listen to the podcast okay i'm moving on i'm moving i i I do think we have a sizable amount of followers on social media that are just like oh horror queers they're gays that like horror so Uh they may i mean i think we have some facebook group members that don't know we're a podcast (laughs) it's wild out there on the internet folks but uh but yeah okay well why don't we start talking about how this film came to be because yeah i mean it was birthed from a book and joe i know you've read it chandler have you read this novel 
I have not. Okay, cool. I haven't either. So I, I started it. I got about 30 pages in, and I think I just, like, never picked it back up. Not because mm-hmm. I didn't like it. I just It just fell away. I won't lie. This is a bit of a hard read, and we can go mm-hmm. into some of the things that the author, because this is an adaptation by the author himself. So what Linkvist does in the adaptation is he wisely removes a lot of the extra shit that weighs the book down. Okay. Which is what you should do when you're mm-hmm. adapting yeah. a book into a film. Yes. <laughs> Well, yeah, so, so this project started in late 2004 when John Nordling, a producer at the production company EFTI, contacted John Ashvid Linkfist, uh, his publisher, Ordfront, to acquire the rights for a film adaptation of his novel, Let the Right One In, which had come out earlier that year. Now, apparently, <laughs> Nordling was the 48th person to call to Whoa. get the rights to this book. <laughs> I gathered it was a wow. very popular yes um to the point though where when he called they basically laughed at him and goes okay we'll put you on the list wow <laughs> imagine being in that position oh our book is so desirable we can just laugh at people who want to adapt it mm-hmm. oh you want a reservation i'm so sorry i'll put you on the list though <laughs> we're actually awful right now but let us put you on the list but okay i don't know how this happened but somehow he was able to just get through directly to Linkvist, and they they got discussing wow. and they realized they had the same idea about what kind of film they should make and so Mm. i I guess fuck the other 47 people ahead of him on that waiting list because he got it (laughs) nice um so a friend introduced thomas alfredson to the novel and alfredson doesn't again this is the weird thing to me he doesn't like to receive books normally because and i quote it is a private thing to choose what to read i mean fair yeah Again, as someone who runs an adaptation podcast, I can tell you the book for me, I'm a bit of a slow read, so that's a Mm -hmm. a factor. But there's something so enticing about film and television because it's a finite amount of time. Like when I put Let the Right One In, it's two hours, and then I'm done it regardless. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I sit down to read the book version of it, it took me two weeks because I had to go at my own pace. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. I mean, I guess whenever someone recommends to me a book, I'm always like, okay, yeah, huh? Whereas with a movie, I'm like, cool, I'm adding it to my list. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. It's really easy to add a film to your list. With Books, I always feel so bad, too, because if you don't like it, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, but you, you put so much effort into it. I know I did, so... Oh, <laughs> It's the commitment, right? Yeah. It is. Um, but anyway, so after a few weeks, he decided to just go ahead and read it, and... While he didn't really have much experience or affinity towards the horror genre, um, but it was the depiction of the bullying that affected him the most based on his own experiences of bullying as a child. Mm. And so he connected with Linkfist and they discovered they understood each other very well. And that was that. So in addition to EFTI, the production company, uh, co-producers included Sverigis Television uh, and the regional production center Film Pool Nord. The production involved a total budget of around 29 million Swedish kroner, a.k.a. 4.5 million U.S. dollars, uh, roughly. Hmm. They got support from the Swedish Film Institute, uh, Danish entertainment company Nordisk Film and TV Fond, production company WAG, and the French premium TV channel Canal Plus. Uh-huh. I feel yep. like whenever Canal Plus shows up, you're just like, okay, here, here we, we go. go. <laughs> We're going to see some good <laughs> That's shit That's how now. it is, yep. <laughs> um, do y'all... It's like you're just canal films, right? Like that's what they'll put, they'll put before the film, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I always associate it with Love Actually. I don't know why. Like, you know, you have like certain oh, movies yep. where certain logos, you're like, that's the one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's Love Actually. That's it. 
I'll touch on the screenplay a bit because I think honestly the most interesting thing is going to be some of the differences that you already addressed, Joe, and I feel like we can discuss those in the plot, but... Sure. Uh, Linkvist had insisted on writing the screenplay himself, which he would go on to do. Alfredson had no familiarity with with the vampire and horror genres, as I said. He initially expressed skepticism at having the original author do the adaptation, but found the end result very satisfying, so... So it all worked out. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Casting for the lead actors took almost a year, with open castings held all over Sweden. Kari Heldebrandt, selected to audition for the role as Oscar after an initial screening at his school, eventually landed the role with Lena Leanderson uh, responding to an online advertisement seeking a 12-year-old boy or girl, quote-unquote, good at running. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know about this sort of gender-neutral casting call for Ely. Hmm. Well, Hmm. and that's, I mean, look. I didn't know until this week that they had dubbed over this actress with a male actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, yeah, because they did it after the fact. So A, if I was her, I'd be a little pissed off. But B, it does add to that kind of, I guess, what, androgyny, yes, of the character. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's an absolute deliberate decision, and it produces an intriguingly uncanny feeling. Like, you know something isn't quite right, when you first watch it and then when you find out it just clicks into place like ah yes okay now i understand why that being said though when we're talking about ellie or ely uh do we want to use they them pronouns just to keep things neutral i'm gonna suggest that we do and it'll become a lot more evident if we're making comparisons to the book but um yeah i i think just because we don't actually know how ellie refers to themselves we shouldn't put a gender onto them okay fair enough um well alfredson uh said that this casting process was the most difficult part of making the film and um and lee anderson had to go through three more auditions before she uh, she was selected to play ellie although the film takes place in blackaberg a suburb of stockholm sweden uh principal photography took place in lulea in the north of sweden to ensure enough snow and cold weather because y'all this movie is cold (laughs) oh man (laughs) it is the jungle gym where much of the interaction between Oscar and Ellie takes place was constructed specifically for the film. And this is actually stuff that I actually do think is really interesting. Um, its design was intended to suit the cinemascope format better than the regular jungle gym, which would typically have to be cropped height-wise. So oh. we're going into, yeah, which types of cameras they had to use and which lenses they had to use to make sure we got the right mise-en-scene that Alfredson was going for. I just think that's so important, though. Like, if you think about it, all of their initial interactions are taking place on this one set. Well, Mm -hmm. it's probably a real location, but (laughs) it's vitally important that you see the distinction between the two characters, but also the height, right? Like, Ellie is always up top, and there's a reticence to join Oscar on the bottom. There's a lot of height in the film, too. So now that you mentioned, I never Mm -hmm. even would have considered how much work they would have had to put into that. Yeah, well, and when you yeah, when you watch it again too, like there's so many wide shots in this movie. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. It's all about the open landscapes, and you're right. Yeah. I mean, the cold is such an important factor in this film. I think Trace, I mentioned to you offline that this movie just makes me feel cold. Yeah. Like it is chilliness embodied, and it's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I think it's so evocative compared to some other films. And I would say. Chandler, it's interesting that you brought up 30 Days of Night because that is another winter set vampire film. So rare. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And we always clamber, cl- we're always clamoring for more like you know snow horror, and it's like, oh well, we have a bunch of vampire movies that do it. Where 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 are my <laughs> snow slashers though? <laughs> yeah. So most of the filming used a single fixed Airy five three five B camera, which means nothing to me, but um, <laughs> it almost with almost no handheld usage and few cuts. Um, right. Tracking shots relied on a track mounted dolly rather than Steadicam to create a calm, predictable camera movement that would yeah. just aid the uh, the the feel of the film Mm -hmm. the crew paid special attention to lighting with cinematographer hoyt van hoytema and director albertson inventing a technique they called spray light they described this as if you could capture dull electrical light in a can and spray it like hairspray across ellie's apartment it would have the same result as what they created for this and for any emotional scenes between oscar and ellie they consistently diffused the lighting that's interesting to me because I think that's another reason why the film spoke to me so much is just the fact that these apartments feel so real because mm-hmm. of the lighting. And just if you've ever had those kind of intimate relationships as a child hanging out with somebody's house, especially if you're like from the poor end or they're from the poor end and you're kind of dealing with the differences and your, you know, your electricity and stuff. There's just a vibe that you mm-hmm. get of just kind of like quietly sitting in that room talking to each other. And I, I, could, I could feel that again in this movie. And that's so interesting to hear that they had to make a whole technique to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, when going into CGI, because this film has a little bit of it, they had about 50 shots with CGI imagery. CGI imagery, that's redundant. With computer-generated imagery. <laughs> Alfredson wanted to make them very subtle and almost unnoticeable. Um, the... The scene that probably looks the worst, and I think we all probably agree on this, is the sequence with the cats attacking yeah. Virginia. Yeah. yeah. It was one of the most complicated scenes to film. It required several weeks of drafting and planning, and they use a combination of real cats, stuffed cats, and CGI cats. I'm not going to lie, and I love this film a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's the worst part of the movie. Well, it would have been yeah. better. I mean, t- you know what? Just do all these stuffed cats and just throw a bunch of stuffed cats on her. Like, yeah, <laughs> and have them just worked. fly off. <laughs> totally would have worked. Either that or abbreviate it down because there's a lot of visible cats in this particular sequence, right? Like Mm -hmm. you could have just hinted at it and we would have gotten the gist. But instead, you know, we had to go outside of the apartment down the stairs and you're just like, no, we we don't need to actually see this much. You know, because we have that one shot where it like leaves the room and we're outside the window looking in. Mm hmm a la that Candyman kill with the art critic, I almost right. think it would have been better if they just done something like that, where we keep sure. pulling back as the cats swarm her. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Look at the 70s as well. I mean, just get a close-up of a cat that's really pissed off, and you're good. You didn't need to have a CGI cat screaming at the screen. Right. <laughs> that's the, I, th- there are some shots that... I mean, every cat outside of that scene is real, right? And there's a <laughs> shot of a cat just standing up, walking towards her, and it is clearly a CGI cat. And I'm just like, y'all, yeah, just no. film a cat walking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cats are notoriously difficult to work with. So. Oh, yeah. That is true. <laughs> it was probably sitting in the corner. The cat's like, uh, actually, I'm on lunch. I don't really feel like attacking right now. So can somebody get me a SIG? Mm-hmm. Um, the sound design uh, was designed so that the soundscape would come as close to the actors as possible with audible heartbeats, breathing, and swallowing always prevalent throughout the film. Yeah. Late in production, so I mean, I, I already kind of said this, but I'll just reiterate. Um, it was decided to overdub Lee Anderson's voice with a less feminine one. So they auditioned both men and women up to the age of 40 for the voice role. And right. 
After a vote, the film team ended up selecting Elif Salen, who provides all of Ellie's spoken dialogue. Footage of Salen eating melon or sausage was combined with various animal noises to emulate the sound of Ellie biting into her victims and drinking their blood. Wow. That being said, the sound crew won a Guldbagi Award. Oh my god. The sound, <laughs> the sound crew won a Goldbodge Award for Best Achievement from the Swedish Film Institute for the nightmarishly great sound, that's a quote, in the film. Hmm. Okay. okay. Good on them. Yeah. Yep. So, let's go right, So we're, let's go through this release channel because we're going to figure out when the fuck you saw this. <laughs> <laughs> Let the Right One In premiered at the Gothenburg Film Festival in Sweden in January of 2008. Alfredson won the festival's Nordic Film Prize, and it subsequently played at other festivals. It did Tribeca in New York City in April of 2008, uh, and it won the Founders Award for Best Narrative Feature. It did the Edinburgh Film Festival in June that year, where it won the Rotten Tomatoes Critical Consensus Award, the first of its kind. The Swedish premiere was originally planned for April 18, 2008, but following the positive response from the festival screenings, the producers decided to postpone the release until autumn to allow for a longer theatrical run. Hmm. They were going to release the film for a special series of screenings in Lulea beginning September 24th and lasting seven days. This was canceled when the Swedish Film Institute announced that Everlasting Moments had been selected over Let the Right One In as Sweden's submission for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. Right. Put that in your back pocket. I was going to say, but that <laughs> isn't what happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the distributors release it in uh, October 24th, 2008 in Sweden. In Norway and as a limited release in the United States. In Australia, the film was released in March of 09 and in Britain in April of 09. We got widespread critical acclaim for this. We got a 98% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 8.3 out of 10, 82 out of 100 on Metacritic, and a letterbox score of 8 out of 10. Right. We should probably know that Entertainment Weekly is not part of that 98%, right, Trace? (laughs) (laughs) Well, so interestingly enough, that is actually how I heard about this movie. Because in 2008, Entertainment Weekly was still my Bible. I got Mm -hmm. that issue every week for like, you know, 10 years of my life. And I, I loved it. But yeah, Owen Gleiberman giving this movie a C. He was like the only critic at the time who was like panning this movie. And he actually, to, to the point where a year later, he went back and rewrote another review because he got so much hate mail for his C review for this movie. Wow. Yeah. And folks, if you have not read the re-review that he did, it is atrocious. He is atrocious. He is <laughs> one of our worst working film critics so happy that he's still in the game how do you feel how do you really feel joe (laughs) fuck that dude he makes film critics look like idiots because his criticism is it's mind-bogglingly bad yeah, I, w- I would agree. Liza Schwarzbaum was always my choice of entertainment movie critic. Oh my god, 100%. It was always like, dear lord, please let Liza be the one who reviews this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, his initial review was like a capsule review. It was like 200 words. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, by the way, though, Chandler, he didn't like it again on his second watch. He still found <sighs> it very confusing. <laughs> Oh, what a surprise. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But no, I mean, we have lots of praise, though. I mean, uh, people praise Alfredson's ability to tell stories through pictures instead of words. Um, A kitchen sink fantasy that gives the vampire story back something that's been missing for a long time, a.k.a. Mm. the ability to frighten us. They praise his beautiful cinematography, the restrained approach to the material. um, And, of course, the the child actors were praised for their Mm -hmm. performances. Yeah, this has got to be some of the best child acting in horror I think I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Same. Oh, yes. In terms of legacy, I mean, this film, so 
outside of just your regular reviews, I know we went through some awards at the film festivals, but like Bloody Disgusting did rank this film first in their their hour list of <laughs> the top 20 <laughs> horror films of the decade. Although it is Chris Egertson writing this, uh, former guest Chris Egertson writing this piece, and he does say... It's rare enough for a horror film to be good. Even rarer are those that function as genuine works of art. Let the Right One In is one of those films. That's beautiful. Yeah. I, yes, I just think it's weird that he's like, it's rare for horror films to be good. But, but that was our mindset <laughs> yeah. in 2008. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're going through a rough patch in 2008, we if were. we're being honest, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> but I think that's one of the reasons why this film sort of breaks through, because... I mean, Trace, you and I have talked about this so, so many times. Mm -hmm. And Chandler, I know you're aware of the sort of ebbs and flows of different subgenres. But mm -hmm. 2008, right? What are we getting stateside? At this time, it would have been the tail end of all the remakes. And we're Saw starting five. to move into, <clears throat> yeah, like we're, we're sort of mid-torture porn moving into J-horror. And Dead along girl. comes a really <laughs> quiet, you know, very subdued, icy, melodramatic, romantic vampire film. And it just feels like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. It also gets ranked number 15 in Empire's 2010 list of the best films of world cinema. Not horror, just all cinema. Yeah. Yeah, fair. It placed number 28 on Time Out's Top 100 Horror Films list, and it was later voted the 94th greatest film since the year 2000 in an international critics poll conducted by the BBC. Hmm. Going back quickly to this Academy Award snafu. Mm -hmm. So, okay. The details surrounding the eligibility of the film are... It, 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 there's some confusion, but... Being released on October 24th of 08, the film would normally be eligible for submission for the 82nd Academy Awards. However, the producers decided to release it, as I said, uh, in September as a seven-day limited run only in Lulea. That would be exactly enough time to meet the criteria for the 81st Academy Awards. Right. When the Swedish Film Institute, uh, the week before, September 16th, announced that Everlasting Moments had been selected instead of the Let the Right One In, the Lulea screenings were then canceled. Well, oh. the problem is then, it could have been eligible for the 82nd Academy Awards because it got released actually in October. Mm -hmm. The problem was it wasn't among the films considered because the Swedish Film Institute doesn't allow a film to be considered twice since it had already been considered for the 81st Academy Awards. So it got loopholed. Loopholed, Exactly. Yeah. So we could have had an Academy Award-winning horror film here, but alas, that was not in the cards for Let the Right One In. Which is so interesting, though, because it does say it was nominated for Best Foreign Film Not in an English Language. Oh, that's the British Academy Film Awards. There mm -hmm. we go. BAFTAs. Ah, yes. So the BAFTAs to the rescue. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, I mean, like we got an American remake directed by Matt Reeves just two years later in 2010. Mm -hmm. And we also got a stage play production of this film, which uh, Chandler, you said you've seen before we, we got on this recording. Yes, it was amazing. I saw it in London, and uh, I don't know how they pulled it off, but they did. They did. <laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> it's a lot of trees, a lot of fake snow, and a big tank. Yes. And a jungle gym. <laughs> I mean, you folks are underselling this so hard. I looked at the trailer, and yeah, it does look like a rather small affair, but also me trying to wrap my head around how they do the finale nearly gave me an aneurysm. No, it, it, it is gorgeous, and it, uh -huh. it sucks because you can't find pictures of the of the tank, of like course. the pool set online, because, yeah, I mean, that's 
if you know the film, like, that's why you're going to see this play. <laughs> it's the money shot of the play. <laughs> but it is really cool. And it is, it is a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous play. And I'm emphasizing play. It's not a musical because I did walk no. into this thinking it was going to be a musical. Oh, really? Oh, okay, no, yeah, weird. I knew it was going to be a play going into it. Did you also know, did you read anything or, like, see any kind of promotional stuff about how they prepared for it? No. Um, okay. I, it was touring through Austin and I got, like, last minute tickets because I was like, oh, fuck, like, I didn't even know it was a thing. Insane. So whoever's playing Oscar had to learn how to do like diving techniques the of way you would in the military so that they could hold their breath for five minutes. Holy shit. Yeah. Well, but yeah, because you do see the boy like mm-hmm. being pushed underwater yeah. with an arm. But again, the actor, the actor holding his head underwater is like above the eye line of the stage. So you can't. Yeah. It's just like the film. You can't see what's above him. Mm-hmm. Right. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, um, but, but we're not going to talk about those things. And granted, though, I think we all agree that the remake is a very solid film, so. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go into this one. Okay. So we open on a snowy evening, and we follow Oscar, who is played by Kari Hedebrandt, and he is watching a man who will eventually come to know as Hacken, played by Per Ragnar, and what appears to be a young girl, Ellie, played by Lena Leanderson, arrive at his apartment complex by cab. And then, of course, I mean, a lot of this film is from Oscar's perspective, but we're also getting a lot of shots that fill in context for the audience that Oscar doesn't know. And that makes it interesting. Uh, So we do get to watch this man, Hacken, immediately board up the windows. So for us, it's like, okay, he's either secretive or he's trying to hide something or, oh, shit, we got a vampire. (laughs) Oh, shit. Um, the, the first line of this film, by the way, because we have the credits going through to black screen with white text. Mm-hmm. But the first line spoken is Oscar saying squeal like a pig. Yep. And yeah, I, did you tell I me? Mean, like, I don't know if it was an intentional deliverance reference, but that is immediately what comes to my mind when I hear someone oh, say squeal like a pig. Didn't even think of it. It is definitely in the book, but I have to feel like the cultural relevance of deliverance is like that is a long shadow. There's yeah. a long tail attached to that movie. And that is the most iconic line. And considering we're talking about bullying, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So at school, we do learn that Oscar is both book smart and the target of extreme bullying, particularly by Connie, who is the ringleader. He is played by Patrick Rydmark. And these kids are shit. They are just garbage children. The worst. I'm actually glad we don't have more time with them. Like, but also, I, there's so many parallels to Carrie in this movie, I feel like, too. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 I will say one of the big differences, and the remake is very faithful in a lot of ways. I think it actually, Matt Reeves has talked about how they are adapting the book, but really it feels more like they're adapting the Swedish film because they're so similar. One of the key differences between the two texts is that the bullying is way worse in the American version. And I think it's a testament to, oh, American audiences will not believe this level of bullying in the Swedish version like it's too tame so they amp it up and folks if you haven't watched in a while the ringleader of the American version is baby Dylan Manette I knew that but I didn't even think about this I didn't know that they went into it saying oh we're doing the book instead because that makes not one but two horror remakes slash readaptations with Chloe Grace Moritz where Mm -hmm. they're like we're gonna do the book but they don't (laughs) and the other one's Carrie (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
Yeah, and the reason that I say that is just because the book has so much content and the American film is leaner in terms of excising a lot of that extra baggage. Like, all of the stuff with the adults who are drinking in the bar, like Lackey and Virginia and Mm -hmm. Gosta, a lot of that gets eliminated. There's Uh so much shit associated with them in the book. And there's actually an entire other storyline involving characters who don't appear in either film that just, like, eats up the page count. Which... Okay, so for both of you, because I was thinking about this last night, too, when I was watching this, and I was like, I don't feel like... I feel like... I'm sorry. Not that you need the Lackey and the Virginia characters, but Mm -hmm. I feel like you could excise that and devote more time to Ellie and Oscar or Hakan and her relationship or Ellie's backstory or anything like that instead of having these characters. But I guess the the only thing you'd be missing is like, is Lackey finding Ellie in the bathtub? Yeah, but you also have the, you get a little vampire lore there. I guess that's why they're doing it because you're actually seeing how this is transmitted just through a bite, kind of like a werewolf. Mm Mm-hmm. I haven't read the book, but I had some friends who's, who've told me about it as well. And correct me if I'm wrong here or just or tell me how it goes, Joe. But um, is it that all the stuff they kind of like take out of it as well really leans more into that, right? They have like people's relationships in the area, but also a bit more of like what it means to be a vampire. Because I hear there's more vampires in the book than just Ellie. So, yeah, the the big thing, and we'll talk about it a little bit more when we get to what happens to Hacken, the mm-hmm. sort of quote-unquote father figure, and his demise <laughs> at the hospital. In the book, he doesn't die. He goes on to become a Frankenstein's monster. Right. But you're absolutely right, Chandler. A lot of the book is actually more concerned about treating this as a community so it's important that we get a multiplicity of perspectives about what is happening within this specific geographical area whereas the film very wisely says this is oscar and ellie's story right so do you like the book joe um i liked parts of it I won't lie, it is a really fucking hard read, if only because there are so many characters, and they're actually all important, but the way it's written, it could be a translation issue, but it's difficult to keep track of who everybody is and where they're at at different moments. Mm. And then there's also a really just absolutely ginormous amount of pedophilia because we're actually in Hacken's head, and in the book, he is a full-on child predator. Like, that's how Ellie finds him, is he has been fired from his job for having suggestive imagery of naked children. And then Ellie uses that to bring him on board and kill for them. But it's because Hacken wants to have a sexual relationship with Ellie. Okay, wait. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry, I know we're like talking about the end here, but for both, doesn't that change the entire read? Because I've always read it as, oh, like Hacken was a child when he met Ellie Mm -hmm. and like Oscar becomes the new Hacken. Yes. And that that, that backstory completely removes that. Completely removes it. Yeah, completely, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And also we get Ellie's entire backstory. So how Ellie came to be a vampire and all the stuff with the gender. Oh, well, we can talk about that when we get that reveal. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. 
So back to this film, really at this point, we're getting tasters of who these characters are, but we have no idea if they have a relationship to one another or what their deal is. So it's pretty telling that very early in the film, we follow Hacken as he prepares these chemicals. He's got this oxygen tank or so we imagine. And then we follow him as he goes into the woods, gasses a man, strings him up, slits the throat and starts collecting the blood. It's It's kind of confronting. Yeah. Yeah, it's but also it's it is bloody, but like the way that Alfredson shoots this, it, it doesn't feel gory or mm-hmm. disgusting. It's but again, it's that sound design coming in too with the gurgling. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's also a very Swedish kind of crime drama way of filming oh, this. Yes. You know, the girl mm-hmm. with the dragon tattoo also has a lot of stuff in it that's not really shown, but you remember all of those gory little details because of just how everybody plays it and how it's filmed. And Ooh. yeah, they're all their movies. All of them do this, and they're so mm-hmm. wonderful, and they're delicious. Also, talk about a book that was um really difficult to keep track of some characters. <laughs> the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. <laughs> yes. Actually, that's a great point of comparison. So if folks have read those books, that's actually what Let the Right One In feels more like. It's actually more of a Swedish thriller in that regard. Okay. But it doesn't give you a family tree like Stieg Larsson did. <laughs> to, 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 flip back, to flip back to every page. <laughs> oh my god. So vital. So vital. <laughs> So Hacken is actually doing reasonably well. You can tell that he has done this before. He's This is not his first rodeo slitting a random man's throat in the woods. And he's doing okay until a dog comes and just sits right in front of him and watches him. And sadly, where there is a dog, there are people walking <laughs> through this woods. And he gets really flustered, fucks everything up, and runs away, leaving the body there without the container of blood. Which... that sucks (laughs) it super sucks so we cut back to the apartment courtyard and oscar is yes mimicking connie's words stabbing this tree talking about squealing like a pig and this is when ellie is introduced so we see ellie they are watching him and almost immediately it's like we're intrigued you can tell that oscar doesn't quite know what to make of this person but He's so shy and introverted. You know, every scene in these early couple of moments, Oscar won't even look at Ellie. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's always downcast or looking in the opposite direction, mm-hmm. but he is interested by them. Well, and this, and this is what you were talking about, Chandler, earlier, with how they are always on a higher level than Mm -hmm. Oscar. And that is how we meet Ellie. They're on the top of this jungle gem, just waiting to just jump down. But but Mm -hmm. also the first thing they say is, we can't be friends. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe don't walk outside and talk to him. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but you get every impression that Ellie has just come from some kind of, you know, where we leave this movie is where Ellie is beginning this film so hypothetically they have been locked up in some kind of trunk over a long period of time I get the impression they're stretching their legs and one thing that immediately visually cues you as wrong is that Ellie is not wearing a jacket or a hat or gloves or shoes Shoes. Mm. and you're just like oh something's not right with this child do y'all do y'all remember if y'all knew it was a vampire? I mean, I guess you had to have known it was a vampire movie when you walked in, right? I didn't. Uh, I didn't know oh, really? for sure. Okay. I didn't watch any trailers. Just had a friend tell me that it was a good horror movie and to watch it. And <laughs> oh, those recommendations! I saw yeah. something really good. You should just check it out. No context. <laughs> I mean, that's. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't mention any box office stuff because unfortunately, this movie never opened in more than fifty three theaters in the United States. So it's like. Oh. 
it made two million dollars in the states, but it was I mean, you know, it made more of its money overseas. Right. Yeah. It actually right. got a release. Oh, fair. Uh, no, I didn't know that it was. Uh, you do and you don't. I guess the the mm-hmm. title for me already kind of gave it away what mm-hmm. we were going to be dealing right. with there. Also, as we're talking about Ellie in the scene when they want to get closer to Oscar, they jump off of the the jungle gym mm-hmm. and it's the way they land oh yeah it's just mm-hmm. so graceful there's almost no plump to it at all and i think that's kind of your first real hint if you haven't noticed all the feet and everything yeah so, <laughs> the yeah. feet of it all the feet of it all <laughs> yeah yeah it almost feels like wire foo watching yeah. Ellie uh-huh. in some of these moves because they are so graceful and again it's that kind of uncanniness where you're seeing what is very clearly a real life child actress but moving with the experience of a dancer and speaking with the cadence of an adult hey it's not just me right there are times when they are drinking blood where their face changes right Yes, so there's another actress that actually plays that role. It's Aged Ellie, and it's played by Suzanne Rubin. Got it. Okay, because cool. I definitely picked it up when when they are eating. I want to say it's Lackey, mm-hmm. and they they look up and they're screaming, and it, I was like that. That yeah. looks very weird. And then the next shot, it's back to Lee Anderson. <laughs> yes, it it's uh-huh. so seamless. I think it happens two or three times in the entire film, but it's always a wait. Did I just oh? And then Lee Anderson's back on the screen. So you you actually question what you've seen. I love that. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the American remake, they don't do that at all. No. They're just like, no, it's Chloe Grace Moretz the whole time. Which I think is fine, honestly. I mean, the, the, the thing that remake gets wrong is it's when they kill the man under the bridge where mm-hmm. I remember that CGI in the remake being egregiously bad. Yeah. And when Ellie climbs up the hospital wall, ba- basically anytime they do vampire motion in the remake mm-hmm. <laughs> is janky. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is sad because the rest of that film is so damn good. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, oh, way to take me right out of it. Shit. I mean, also the shot of like Ellie climbing up the hospital wall in this movie, I was like, that is beautiful and gorgeous mm-hmm. and awesome. <laughs> just do that. Yeah. <laughs> Nightmare. She's like a spider. Oh, yes. You don't yes. know that they're there. I had mm-hmm. to rewind it because I saw them you know, when they start moving and they go up the window. But I was like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, they're there the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yep. it's because it's it's composed like a fucking beautiful painting, but Ellie is in shadow, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the use of framing and the screen... Real estate. The use of framing and just like where characters are positioned and how we're establishing these shots, it's like everything looks like art. Yeah, agreed. Which, because this director would go on to do Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which I've never seen, but I... It's pretty but boring. Struggle saying that name all the time. And... The snowman. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I gave you all the clues, Mr. Detective. <laughs> Ugh, Lord. But hopefully he he comes back with a hit sometime. There we go. There we go. So at this point, Hacken comes home, and it's a big kerfuffle because Ellie's waiting for that blood, and he ain't got none. So mm-hmm. it's not a good thing. But it does immediately give you some insight into their power dynamics. Of course, this is from Oscar's perspective through the wall. But normally, we don't expect to hear children yelling at their parents. So again, hmm, something's different here. We also don't really, I mean, we don't really know for sure yet that this is Ellie talking to Khan because they don't. We don't see no. Ellie in the frame. No, no, this is from Oscar's point of view in his apartment 
hearing what's okay. going on in their apartment, mm-hmm. but we never see it. I do think we see an exterior shot, at least to see kind of like the shadows from um, the neighboring window. Mm-hmm. Also, what I really like about it is that this is one of the first moments where getting that older and, and more masculine voice is mm-hmm. used very strongly because it just sounds like some 20 year old dude is screaming at somebody <laughs> in the apartment. <laughs> yeah. Oscar's like, Ooh, what's going on over there? It's as they get hungrier, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. the sounds of the stomach, too, are not pleasant. Oh, Ooh, yeah. 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 And Leanderson sells that shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so we do see Oscar's mother, but she's barely a character in this. Like, uh-huh. she's kind of a presence in the apartment, but I'm going to try not to be ungenerous to this mother character because clearly she is going through some shit, but also it's just like lady your child is going through a whole lot and you are not there for oscar oh yeah because she's a working mom and the dad is an alcoholic that's all we really get to know about either of these characters Mm -hmm. i get me again like do we want more screen time devoted to that No. no 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 but at the same time yeah i get it like lady (laughs) but it's also i guess we have, have we said that this is a period piece we have not no no it takes place in 1982 Yes. So it might also be that maybe parents were more lax back then with their children. Well, it's interesting because in the book, it's actually tied into the Cold War. There's actually a moment where a Russian submarine Mm -hmm. surfaces and everybody panics. Um, And like the place that Oscar takes Ellie, which kind of looks like a party room where he tries to do the blood pack and it goes very badly. That's a bomb shelter. But you don't really know it. Like, you have to read around the edges of the film to understand some of that context. Uh Got it. A little historical knowledge goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because even, like, the area that they're living in is meant to be, it's, like, created for poor people. So it's, like, it was planned in a certain way. It's why, like, all the apartments look identical. It's because it's meant to be a poor part of town where basically the Swedish government was like, "Uh, poor people, go live here, please. We would like oh, you yeah. off in this area. Quite common in Europe, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's just interesting, right? Because there's extra class mixed into the critique and so on. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Trace, I talked over you. Oh, no. I, I, I just think you love your class critiques, don't you? <laughs> I do. Indeed, I do. You know why? Because we don't do it well enough in the North America. No, I always respect you with that, though, because that's never something because I'm so privileged. I don't know. Uh, I never I never <laughs> notice the critiques all the time. So you always bring that to my eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's often there. That's the problem. But mm-hmm. OK, so, yeah, so Oscar's mom is kind of fretting about him. He's stealing clips from the newspaper so that he can put it into this, you know, murder handbook. And his this masturbation is book. All- that's all valuable insight to get us to where Oscar's headspace is, right? Because we've seen this child attacking a tree with a pocket knife. Now we see that he's collecting headlines about murders. And it's just very much, okay, he's a little bit odd. Now, it doesn't justify the kind of bullying that he's experiencing at the hands of Coney and these other kids. But it's not hard to understand why he's a bit of an outsider. No. This is where I started to really relate here. If Mm -hmm. I I may tangent just a little bit. Go for it. Because, you know, I, as a kid, really expressed it. 
you know, I've always been a bit of that gothy, edgy, alternative kind of kid mm-hmm. from, say, the age of 13 or so. The moment I saw what a Marilyn Manson was, I was kind of like, whoa, people can look like that. Right. And then you start seeing, like, other metal bands and stuff like, well, hold up, hold up. Black is a good color. <laughs> and then, you know, you adopt it that way. And so I know why I was a bit of a lightning rod for it, just because of, it's like, look at me. If you didn't want to like somebody, I was really easy to go, like, you're it today. Right. And then, of course, if you have a bit of a headstrong attitude against it, then they're going to like, and you're it every day yeah. until we stop, you know, we break you, basically. Mm-hmm. I related a lot to Oscar in this situation, especially at that age, because I had moved to yeah. Illinois, which was very cold, very icy, away mm-hmm. from my family. And I was just me and my mom. Now, my mom also had to get a job and wasn't home very often. Come to find out, I found this out years later, but she had, she had a lot of medical problems. Uh, so she was mm-hmm. in and out of the doctors while I was hanging out at school and just getting my shit kicked in, basically. Right. Uh, and the school system has never been that wonderful in the United States. So, uh, yeah, a lot of what Oscar went through, I went through. And it's just so interesting to me to see how they just pick on him for almost seemingly no reason. Because at the mm-hmm. very least, I kind of drew it in to me. Like, okay, I get it. With him, he's just kind of like keeping to himself. Oh, he read a book today. Oh, poor kid. Yeah, oh, it's going to beat the crap out of him. I guess it just really touched that nerve in me of just like, okay, so people really just smell it. Mm-hmm. They know when you're going to be vulnerable to it, and they know it before you've even had an interaction. That's the incredible part to me for the characterization in this film. It's so interesting when it comes to... At least the bullying in this film, at least, because it's even going to Carrie, if you want to link that again. Right. It's not even like, I I feel bad even saying this, but I I, I watch them and I'm like, these people aren't doing anything that merits being bullied. (laughs) And not that anything merits being bullied, but it's like, they're just quiet introverts. Like, that's Mm -hmm. all they are. And these bullies just feed on that shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's why... It's such a blink and you'll miss it kind of moment in the film. It is elaborated on in a little bit more detail in the book, but it's important that we later see that Connie is himself a victim of bullying by his older brother, Jimmy, who ultimately is the one who escalates the bullying into a homicidal level. And that's why we get the pool scene at the end. And I don't want to... It sounds like I'm saying, oh, well, if you're being bullied, then you have a reason to bully other people and then it's acceptable. It's the same thing as like if you get, you know, molested as a child, it doesn't mean that you're going to become queer. It doesn't mean that you're going to become a molester. Like it's not a cause and effect thing like that. But I do think it helps us to understand a little bit more where, yeah, people get preyed upon because people need to feel powerful and they seek out what is perceived weakness. And in this case... Oscar doesn't appear to have any friends and he's very quiet and he's smart. So it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, the smart shy kid with no friends to help him out. That's easy prey. If I'm Connie, I'm looking at this kid saying, yeah, you're right for the picking. Well, and it's it's the it explains his behavior. It doesn't excuse his behavior. Yes. Thank you. That Mm -hmm. is vital. Also, on that targeting level, I will also say that the being smart part, I think you have to have a level of you threaten the person somehow, right. especially if you're not throwing it out there of just like, hey, I'm not like anybody else. Bully me. Right. Uh, you know, if you just are like, why are people coming at me? It's like, well, how well are you doing? What are you doing that's making them feel very insecure? And they yeah. just really have to stomp you out in front of everybody to make an example out of you because they're not going to keep up with you. That's hey, I'm not tooting my own horn here, but I, 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 I was a flamboyant child. OK. And I was very loud, but I was also like very 
confident or at least like gave across that air of confidence and it wasn't until right. i started bullying that i was like wait should i not be confident because i'm doing something deserving of this treatment mm-hmm. but yeah i think you're right i think i think for me specifically that's what drew bullies to me outside of the general like effeminate flamboyantness of, of myself <laughs> This is the part where I once again just reiterate, kids are shit. We are so mean to each other for no apparent reason. And it's just like this social hierarchy where we're trying to figure out where do we fit in. And so often that seems to translate into, okay, so who do I have to beat down to feel better? Mm -hmm. Do you think it's better today? Like generally, not, not, not like a widespread like, oh yeah, bullying doesn't exist anymore. But do you think it's better today with kids? It's different. I've yeah. actually been hanging out with uh, my 13-year-old nephew since I've been here on a trip with family, and just some of the stories I hear from him, like, I hear how he's been bullied and, mm-hmm. and the things that he's going through, and I can relate to a lot of them. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, okay, and I tell him, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember when this and this happened, that and that happened, and just, he goes pale when he hears about, like, switchblades and people, yeah. like, pushing you into concrete, and yeah. just the level of, like, oh, yeah, they wanted me actually dead. And in his case, it's just, you know, they're just little shits who are mean to each other and just make you kind of want to not be alive, basically, is what they do now. I think it's also moved virtually, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's important that this film is a period piece. Like, if if they remade this movie and modernized it or set it in contemporary times, it wouldn't be Oscar getting bullied at the pool or at school, right? It would be he would be getting messages online. Well, but I think that's also why it's, I mean, I feel like if I were a screenwriter, I would want to do something like that was a period piece before social media became a thing, because Mm -hmm. I feel like that provides so many avenues of, well, why doesn't this happen? Why doesn't this happen? Why doesn't this happen? You just do, oh, 1982, they have phones. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Landlines. Yes. (laughs) Well, it's important that people are not able to get a hold of each other in this movie, right? It advances the plot in several instances. Yeah. Um, Okay. So at the local dive bar the next day, we meet some of these locals and Hacken is there. He is also sort of setting himself apart because everybody else is getting loaded and he's drinking milk. So Mm. Lackey, who is played by Peter Carlberg, definitely notices him notices that he not only doesn't fit in but that he maybe has money so lackey tries to saddle up to him and say like hey maybe you can buy me a drink you know what's your deal blah 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 and hacken just absolutely refuses to engage he's not rude but he doesn't want to get involved in any of this so he just leaves he does shotgun that milk pretty classy like, no no i'm, I'm good i'm, <laughs> I'm done thank you but no <laughs> and as as a milk connoisseur i drink a lot oh, of you milk too. Hmm. I can't. I've never ordered milk. A what at a restaurant at a yeah a bar. Yeah. But I was like, what do they? I guess they make like a, a white Russian. They have no. Milk, this is just, milk. Uh-huh. This is not an alcoholic no. beverage. No, I, I, I know, but I was like, what bar would even have milk to serve you? Well, <laughs> I can tell you that it's also even stranger in Europe because I am also a milk connoisseur, <laughs> and uh, you know, I grew up just wanting to have milk with things. You know, I was like, well, yep. those in milk. It just goes well it goes with everything yeah it does and uh so i liked it i remember the first few times i ordered milk and it's on the menu they just kind of look at you like are you ordering this right now yeah <laughs> are you a 12 year old child yeah well that's the thing when i was in norway i i think milk with pizza is a fantastic combination uh yes and mm. we went to a pizzeria and a friend of ours who was with us also just drinks milk with just every meal so he ordered a glass of milk and i was like yeah i could go for some milk and they just looked at us and I'm like um I mean, we have it for, like, cocktails uh, as an ingredient for the food, but 
I'm sorry. It's like, he's like, well, how much would it cost if I wanted to have it? And they're like, I'm sorry, but it's you kind of reserve it for babies. But <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. No, I, I was okay. This is bad. I, I was following this gay stand-up comedian. I forgot his name, but he like posted his pen tweet once. This stand-up set he did where he was talking about how he was on a date with a guy who ordered a glass of milk, and then he proceeded to shame this person Aww. for ordering this glass of milk because he couldn't stop thinking about the milk churning in his guts before wow. he was going to fuck him. Oh wow. And. I unfollowed this comedian because I, I get it's a joke, but I was like, I like milk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you lost this one. Not the milk. That's the line. <laughs> Out of curiosity, was a Chun Holenbach? No. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> okay, so milk aside, Hacken is not making friends. And then we cut back to the yard that night, and Oscar is teaching Ellie how to use his Rubik's Cube. And I love this idea that what brings them together is puzzles, because in a way, Ellie is a puzzle to be solved by both Oscar uh-huh. as well as the film. Uh-huh. So that. Oscar then remarks about Ellie's smell. Because Ellie smells a little bit weird. And also, (laughs) they are not dressed appropriately. And Ellie just kind of dodges this, but they are very sick. And immediately solve this problem by attacking Jacques, who is played by Michael Ram, in the pedestrian underpass. And similar to the first attack scene with Hacken in the woods, this is just a long take static long shot. Yes, so beautiful. It's just such a different way of capturing violence. I feel like I'm not used to it. I, I want frenetic edits and cuts and things. And this is just, no, you have to live no. in this. You have That's to see it coming yeah. and then watch it unfold. Yeah. I also just love, this is one of those moments where the period peaceness of it all is used because it was, uh, I'm going to try this. It's like, like Yoka, I think is how they would say his name. Mm-hmm. As he's coming up to ellie and they're just uh, and their guts are bubbling and everything mm-hmm. they're like uh, he's like hey uh i'm gonna pick you up and i'm gonna yeah. take you to a phone yeah i love that line I know, i'll take you to a phone and then we'll see if we can call somebody as if there's just there's nothing else you can do and it's such a great way for ellie to get him close to them yeah and again i really really appreciate alfredson's restraint from not like cutting mm-hmm. to zoom in yes on on this attack like we just yeah. look at it from afar as bystanders mm-hmm. and again I, I know i say complicit a lot but it almost makes us feel complicit we're like we're watching this happen and can't do shit about it oh absolutely and it's so ironic right because gosta who is played by carl robert lindgren is mm-hmm. also watching this so it's like we are complicit in it in the same way that he is You know, he's just watching this attack and stroking his fucking cat. You're like, okay. (laughs) But then you realize, yeah, we're doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So after drinking the man's blood, Ellie snaps his neck. And then afterwards, Oscar hears more arguing through the wall. Yeah, that was an interesting one, too, because now we have the power... I mean, I I know that the power dynamic never really changes between the two of them. Mm Mm-hmm. But... This is a moment where it sounds like a father scolding a child because Ellie's told the story like, yeah, I just left a dead body lying there and snapped their neck. And, mm-hmm. and then you have Hakan is like, I'm trying my best over here and you're just doing all this shit. And I just love that we get the exact same sequence, but then flipped for this moment because you can only imagine what Oscar's thinking at this moment. Oh, gosh. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, one of the things that I find so fascinating about Ellie as a character is that At times, they will act as though they have been, yes, alive for 200 years. 
And then at other times, they act like every year of the 12 years that they identify themselves as to Oscar. Like, sometimes they're a child, and sometimes they're an ancient vampire. It's just a really fascinating mix, because with Oscar, he always seems like a 12-year-old. His understanding of the world is like, why can't nice things happen to me? Also, I like this person who I think is a girl. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, oh, Oscar, you're sweet. I mean, (laughs) Ellie is 12, give or take. Yes, and has been for many years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Gosta ends up telling Lackey, as well as his girlfriend Virginia, who is played by Ica Nord, and the others at the pub about this attack. So they're like, cool, let's go find out what's happened. But all they can find is a little bit of blood underneath the snow. And that's because Hacken has booted ass out to the crime scene, and he is dragging this body to a nearby frozen lake. Mm-hmm. I, I love I, every shot in the woods. Oh, I yeah. love. I mean, yes. <laughs> there is a reason that stage play is primarily trees. <laughs> I was thinking that, too, because they even do a lot of the stuff with Oscar and his father. Instead of go- doing any of that in the cabin, they're like, we're using these trees. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? get, they play get checkers the heavy in mileage the woods. Out of the trees. <laughs> uh, just constant falling snow. Yep. <laughs> it sounds gorgeous. It, 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 it really is. was. The, the, the blocking is stellar. Oh, I see. Hmm. So in the morning, Oscar finds the completed Rubik's Cube out at the playset, and Ellie declares that they are, yes, 12 or so. They also come off looking quite a bit cleaner and less disheveled and more just overall healthy. <laughs> hmm. I will say one of the things that I find ironic a little bit about the film and also the book is like Ellie seems to take about a gulp of blood out of all of these victims. And you're just like, can you really not get more out of this person? Like (laughs) they got a tiny body. okay? that's like all they can do. And it, it, it does the job, right? They're like, ah, well. I'm better. That's good. Mm -hmm. For context, in the book, it's made clear that Ellie cannot drink dead blood. So, like, Hacking Mm. couldn't kill someone and then take the blood, and then they would feed, like, Ellie would then feed from that blood for weeks or months at a time. It has to be fresh blood, which is why Hacking is constantly having to go out and find fresh victims. So important for later, too. Honestly, well, I guess it's for cleanup, but I'm like, honestly, I would just start bringing people back to the apartment and just be like, here, kill them, and I'll get rid of the body. I'll fucking acid the hell out of this body. <laughs> yeah, I'll use the acid for other people's bodies, not my own <laughs> body. Well, he also two-faces himself instead of, like, whole-facing himself. Oh, man. It- it's not for lack of trying. Yeah. So at school, Oscar delays leaving in order to copy out Morse code so that he can better communicate with Ellie, but it doesn't end up helping him with the bullies because they're just waiting for him outside and he gets whipped by a stick in the face. Yeah, Yeah. in the in like the frigid cold, too. Mm -hmm. So at home, he ends up lying to his mother, but he does tell Ellie the truth when they meet up and Ellie encourages him to hit back hard. Oh. They're like, bitch, you got to hit them back. Otherwise, they're going to keep doing it. (laughs) Which is, okay, so I know we've had a lot of conversation already about bullying. What do you two think about this messaging where you have to stand up to your bullies? Otherwise, it will just continue on indefinitely. Trace, you want to start with? I'll start. I'll start. I I support it. But I, here's the thing. That stems from me regretting never doing it myself. Um, Okay. I... I was so afraid of getting in trouble 
Right. I never caused a ruckus. I always followed the rules that included when I was getting bullied. And again, most of my bullying was verbal. It wasn't a lot of physical abuse. So I got lucky in that department. Uh I mean, you don't need to diminish it because verbal bullying is also awful. Yeah, I know. But I'm like, you know, I mean, I'm not getting like getting the shit kicked out of me when I'm leaving school. But but I, I take your point. I take your point. But I, I I wish like I wish I had the for lack of a better term the balls mm. to fight back and so when I right. watch stories about bullying I get a lot of catharsis from that right. when they do fight back because it's like it's living out a fantasy that I never got to have yeah so yeah that's me okay consider this like a PSA I guess okay. so uh, anybody who's listening to this who is probably too young to be listening to this podcast. <laughs> but they are out there. We know that you're sure. out there. So uh, I'm going to talk to you a little specifically right now. Um, if you think it's real cool sounding to like beat the crap out of other people, I know what it's like. You want to get that revenge on people as well. My advice is you got to be smart. So <laughs> the, the most important thing here is you need to know, can you do it? Should you do it? Are you the aggressor? Are you the one who's in the wrong in the situation? Are you defending yourself? And can you even do that? I've had many a time where I was just a spindly little, you know, 90 pound kid wet mm-hmm. and, you know, getting all bold in front of people. And those were the days I came home just completely disheveled and bloodied up and, and, and not having a good day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, as I grew around like 13, 14, I suddenly shot up to like six foot two. And <laughs> then know. people still trying to bully me. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. It got worse because, oh, he's a nerd and we can go for the knees. Oh, God. But. I started to fight because I was living with my dad at the time and he was just like, look, I don't want you ever starting to fight, but if uh, somebody starts something, I better hear that you didn't do anything. So I was so like, you okay. So you hit back hard. Uh, I went into blind rage. So oh, if you no. bottle it up too much, if you right. don't let it out at all and just at least shout at the person, you just suddenly wake up and you're just like, what's happening? And I remember choking out quite a few people not knowing, I mean, had long arms, hooray. Yeah. But... Uh, <laughs> It's not a pleasant thing, no matter what, but I will say you should defend yourself, but you should be smart about it. You know, there's nothing wrong with knowing, like, where's the adult in the area? Right. What situation am I in? Can I outrun them? Mm. Could I even make sure that it doesn't even escalate in the first place? You know what I mean? Like, look at what Oscar does. He takes that one hit, they leave. And that, I think, is probably the wisest thing he could have done. Because he's got three to one odds. In this scenario, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Right? So in Ellie's point, I mean, Ellie's also like a 200-year-old vampire who can rip people <laughs> into pieces. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I get it. But at the same time, I do like how it ends up later in the film, although he does go too far. It's just more like, I mean, his aim is a little off. Maybe go for like a shoulder first or something. Right. Uh, but I just feel like that one person, who's the one picking on you? Because what they do so well in the yeah. scene with the twigs is it's Connie going, do it. Mm-hmm. And they're all like, they look at Oscar like, I don't like hurting kids. I just laughed at jokes. Yeah, I don't like you. I don't know that I actually wanted to physically hurt you, but now yeah. we're in this situation and I'm being peer pressured into yeah. hitting this child with a stick. Yeah, yeah. Peer, peer pressure is very, very real. And as a kid, I'm just like, look at why you're being bullied in the first place. And if you're the smart kid, you need to use that to survive. That's my advice on that. But I do feel if that fist hits and you feel the rage, go ahead and use it. You know, do what you got to do to get them off you. And uh, just know what's going to happen next time you speak to an adult, though. Right. Because you're still wrong. 
that that's the thing, right? Like if you if you fight back, well, it's like sorry, you're still gonna get in. I I remember I remember having like an assembly with like a group with my grade because someone got in a fight mm-hmm. and oh. someone was like. Because the teacher was like, you cannot fight. Do not fight. Well, what if someone punches me? Am I just supposed to let them attack me? Do not fight back. Like, they didn't say, yeah. They just said, do not fight back. And it's like, that doesn't help, though. So you're basically telling me, fucking take a bunch of hits. Otherwise, if I fight back, defending myself, even if it's Mm self-defense, I'm going to get in trouble and possibly suspended or expelled. Yeah, I have been suspended, or almost. I've, I've been paddled, been yelled at for fights and stuff. And yeah, the, the, the punishment system from the schools, they will always be like, well, I'm sorry, but the, you know, you participated in it. And I have to say, I still held my head high, just kind of going like, but I didn't have a broken kneecap that they were trying to break. I uh, still was able to, for one, you get a little bit of respect from the person who's coming at you because you're not being just a punching bag. Yeah. That's what they're looking for. Is Are you even awake? But if they can take you, though, then they win. I was so afraid of suspension or ramifications because I was like, oh my God, my parents are going to kill me. And I probably could have been like, well, this is why it happened. But I was so afraid to tell my parents that I was being bullied because I didn't want them to know I was being bullied. So it it was like a shame side of it for that for me. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, we don't ever get any insight into what Oscar is thinking about this. It's I think in the early part of the film, it never even occurred to him that he could fight back. He's just trying to avoid being in the situations where he could be in danger. Like, right. in a way, I almost admire this particular strategy. I'm going to stay late at school and hope like hell that they all just went they home because I waited yeah. so long. Yeah. It doesn't work. But, mm. you know, as an adult, it's really frustrating to watch Oscar come home and his mom be like, oh, what happened to your face? And he's like, I oh, I fell on a rock. Yeah. And you're just like, or you could confide in her, even if she is an absent mom or you feel like that relationship isn't quite there. You know, there's opportunities to try to ameliorate this situation because instead he just so overcompensates. And I will say, again, it's way worse in the book. He does the stick to the ear to Connie, but uh-huh. then later on, he actually sets fire to the entire classroom. Oh, Nobody's in there. He doesn't kill anybody, but he burns down an entire classroom. Damn. And, and like, even to speak why he doesn't tell his mom, it's also just like, I mean, like, let's, sure, shame may be an aspect, but it's also like, what if my mother sees me the same way these bullies do? And it's such a yeah. weird, mm-hmm. in hindsight, like, like, an unreasonable thought to have. Oh, but at 12 years old, for sure. And when yeah. you've just when you are the result of constant bullying, like yeah, you were you might think, well, what if my parents think the same? So it's better not to tell them. And mm-hmm. it comes down to reason again as well, because I mean, I think all three of us we will definitely share the fact of like being queer in any level. Yeah, and you don't want to tell your parents that, especially yeah. if you hear any conversation they might have just out of concern. Oh yeah, why are they picking on you? What have you been doing? Oh yeah, <laughs> or, or it's like like what are they saying to you? Well, they're calling me a, a, a lot the of gay slur. slurs. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, why is that? Why well, are they calling you that? Yeah. <laughs> what did you do? The final piece is potentially that. Even if someone like Oscar tells his mother the possibility that they might then go to school and say something and it just makes it worse, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had that. Yep. And I, I will say, though, again, younger listeners, if you have the relationship with your parents that you can talk to them about things, if they if you can tell that they're meaning well and maybe just not expressing themselves very well, try to 
bridge that gap a little bit because yeah. you do need to have some sort of protection unit. You're young, you're small, you're going to get hurt, okay? Yeah. And uh, I wish I had done that a little bit more. I did it as I got older because it was like, now it's too much. Mm. Now I'm just like, I've I've tried to fight my own battles here. They just keep coming. So I was like, hey, mom, this is what's happening at school. Unfortunately, my mom is just like, what? <laughs> and she would fight it for me. She's like, you, hey, you little shit, what are you doing to my kid? Yeah, so she would fight a parent if she had to. She'd fight a school board if she had to. There you go. But at my dad's, no, no. He'd just be like, well, let me tell you how to punch. Right. You know, he'd try to give me the skills to do it, whereas I'm like, I just want a parent right now. Yeah, like, I, I don't want to have to fight my own fights. I want to do yes. that. I just want to go to school and learn. Oh, no. God. Ugh. So Oscar ends up taking Ellie's advice. He goes to inquire about strength training from Mr. Avila. There you go. Who's played by Cayetana Ruiz. And I I like Mr. Avila in terms of what he represents. And I also like the fact that he ends up just being another kind of well-meaning adult who cannot save Oscar. Oh, no. Yeah. Mm-mm. It feels more real to this world. Like, one of the things that I really came away appreciating from the film, but also informed by the book, is just how little anyone seems to understand about what is happening around them in this world, right? Like, they're surrounded by people all the time in this apartment complex, at the school, at the pool, and yet no one seems to know what's happening in anyone else's Uh life. It's why Ellie can sneak into this world and be such a threat, because it's like, oh, I just moved in next door, but nobody knows who I am. Exactly. I mean, this happens enough in the United States, and I'm, I'm sure Canada as well, but it's a very cultural thing. So just to point that out for anybody who may not be aware of it, like, again, I don't know a lot of Swedes, but I do know a lot of Scandinavians. Mm-hmm. Very stoic people, very mind your own business, oh, okay. and just non-confrontational whatevs mm-hmm. kind of folk. Mm -hmm. So they're hard to read. They're really very low on that emotional scale. Okay. So even if Oscar were to flat out tell a teacher, like, hey, I'm getting my head cracked in all the time, they'd be like, huh, Hmm. huh. That's interesting. I guess we'll try to, you know, we'll do an assembly, I guess. Yeah, we'll we'll pay attention to that. Good luck. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So the teacher actually, for being a Swedish teacher, is very you know hands-on with his class because they even okay. say later when they're on the ice like oh he's gonna freak out if he sees us try yeah, to do anything right. so he's very you know observant okay interesting mm. see this is why the cultural context becomes so important yeah mm-hmm. so speaking of cultural context let's talk about some vampire lore shall we yes. <laughs> so this is where we learn a little bit more about ellie as a vampire Cats do not like them, as we learn when we go to buy some candy at this local vendor. <laughs> and also, human food, not so good. Nope. Just vomit it up. Yeah. Poor thing. But I do appreciate that this is Ellie realizing, you know what, I could make a connection to this person. Like, I'm going to try. Sure, I'll eat your shitty looking candy, and then I'm going to puke it up, but at least I made the effort. <laughs> this also is where everything ties into that detail that we're missing from the book about Hakan being a pedophile mm-hmm. and being older because Ellie's choosing to hang out with Oscar. Yes, it's Oscar over Hakan. Yeah, and choosing to also put themselves in a lot of discomfort just to make mm-hmm. sure that Oscar isn't sad. Yeah. I almost hate that I know that backstory from the book, Joe, and obviously it's not your fault, but it's like cuz I can't <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't No, you're fine. I just I can't see cuz the film you're right, makes uh, the very wise decision to not have that be the case because it 
a to answer your question from earlier i do view this as a tragedy like it is a romance but like it's also very like the way this movie ends i find very depressing yeah but yeah it's it's more so like yeah ellie is realizing that they need to get a new <laughs> get a new handler yeah uh, so you think this is ellie already grooming oscar <laughs> yeah exactly yes oh my god thank you yes grooming oh more grooming mm-hmm. um yeah i would 100 always read it this way and so uh, I honestly don't know if I find Ellie's feelings for Oscar to be genuine or merely yeah. opportunistic. Yeah. Yeah. Is it clearer in the book? Um, it isn't. We we only get a couple of chapters from Ellie's perspective. And unfortunately, a lot of the backstory about how they came to be. So how they came to be a vampire, not entirely clear. How they came to transition from boy to girl girl quote-unquote is explicit um Uh basically it involves being sold into child prostitution and then being castrated while being sexually assaulted did i mention that the book is really fucking hard to read at times and then there's another scene later on where hakan after he has become a kind of frankenstein's monster tries to really aggressively sexually assault ellie so a lot of the chapters from their perspective are very much associated with trauma and uh-huh. violence. Okay, that's what I was hoping for because that's the thing I was getting from this. In I know the debate. I knew the debate back when the movie came out too. Was like, is this a romantic story, or mm-hmm. are we watching like some sort of well, grooming? Yeah, it's a very good word. And I think, I mean, could it not be both? It could be both. to a certain extent because, yeah. like, yeah. I think that there's definitely the opportunistic angle there of like, well, this is helpful, and I like the guy because mm-hmm. uh, I'm feeling that. Ellie is probably seeing a lot of themselves in Oscar's trauma. Right. And being like, I'm not going to let this kid Mm. grow up to be me. Right. Well, but uh, the fact of the matter is, though, that there, no matter what, you're right. Let's say it's both. There is never, never a situation involving Ellie in which they are not seeking out another person for for opportunistic reasons because right. they need they yeah. need they, they will always need someone to help them mm-hmm. uh feed. Yeah. I mean we we haven't even touched upon it. So this is week number 2 of talking about child vampires but such a completely different character from Near Dark and of course we mentioned the Kirsten Dunst character mm-hmm. from Interview with a Vampire. Huh. Ellie is a completely different beast, right? has all of the strength and the maturity but also trapped in a child's body and therefore can't get away with certain things like i love the reveal that ellie has a ton of money and like can just pay for everything but also i'm a fucking 12 year old so i can't rent an apartment i can't just travel by train by myself because it draws suspicion well, I would love to know what happens after the credits roll on this movie. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. there's actually a novella that addresses what happens when they get older, like after the fact. But we'll talk about <gasps> it at the end. Yes. Oh, my God. I want to oh. know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it, importantly to our queer reading, this is the moment where Ellie asks Oscar if he would like them if they weren't a girl. And, of course, he's a 12-year-old boy who has a burgeoning crush. And he's like, yeah, no, of course. Obviously, girl, I love you. And you're just like, Oscar, listen to the question. <laughs> Read between the lines, Oscar. He's 12. He's 12. <laughs> 
there's no between the age of 12. There's just but, but at, le- at least what we do get, I mean, com- compared to the book is what happened to Ellie in the book was against their will. Correct. Whereas in the movie, it's ambiguous. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. we'll talk about we why know. that's important when we get the really the, the only reveal, reveal mm-hmm. of this movie that confirms that this is a, a trans narrative. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. this was the second thing that spoke to me when i i did not even realize that until very recently because this is something we explored trace on my podcast on dead girl yeah yeah it was that you know in the last few years of of really being around more like-minded folk and uh queer horror fans and trans horror fans and stuff and actually hearing people out more because i was kind of a piece of shit up until that point (laughs) (laughs) you're so hard on yourself i really no you didn't know me so (laughs) i just really didn't listen to people who didn't have time for them i had the whole like oh i don't discriminate i hate everybody that shitty you know contrarian attitude (laughs) right that's so metal of you (laughs) but uh it really came down to like i have felt and discovered more and more that i am not cis uh i I may present as such and Mm -hmm. i I'm okay with doing that, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that I don't walk around with my own dysphoria and feelings and stuff. And uh, I've always had it, but I didn't really know what it was until I heard more people talking about it. And this movie always struck that chord with me, with Ellie, because it's just kind of like the whole, what? But what are you? Mm -hmm. But how are you? And they're, huh? Oh, I'm just going to not think about that. That, For years, is kind of what I did, but I kept being drawn to this character. And so then for me, it's just like, it's the two me's in a movie kind of talking to each other so for me i i'm always really sad when i'm done watching this movie but with that you know that melancholy the kind of like sad with a smile kind of thing yeah it's like it's representation but it's the representation of you that's like yeah thank you for putting all my depression in a movie uh but they did it so well um but yeah so that scene always has always uh, really hit me with the whole would you would you still like me if i wasn't a girl and it's like man i've actually had that feeling like would you still like me if i wasn't a boy kind of mm, feeling right so it's so interesting for me at least i like just hits on, on a particular level well, that's really meaningful chandler <laughs> like thank you for sharing that because to me i'm just you know i watch this as a, a cisgendered male and i go oh okay so this is the film you know yeah if we're reading it through the queer lens it's saying maybe Ellie isn't a girl. And of course, if you're reading it from a more conventional narrative perspective, you're like, oh, okay, well, Ellie's not a human being, so she's not a yeah, girl. that's what I did at first. But nevertheless, I mean, it's always an insight that, like, I mean, I, I confess when it comes to gender issues, I, I, I'm still learning and working through things. And I, I, there are times when we have discussions <laughs> where I'm like, I feel like I'm on the outside looking in because I'm trying to not understand, but I guess relate to it more. Mm-hmm. Right. And unfortunately, that's just not, I mean, there's just a, a barrier at some point. <laughs> of course. <laughs> because, because I am cisgender. Well, yeah, because we can't live other people's experiences. So the best we can do right. is have these conversations or do research to better understand, like, you know, there's been a lot of well done pieces about this film. I'm going to try to bring in somebody a, a little bit later about specifically the queer element of this. Okay. But it's tough right like i want to understand and be able to empathize with other people's experiences and i hate the fact that i will this is going to sound weird i hate the fact that i can't understand the full experience of what our trans colleagues are going through and in some ways i'm happy for it because a lot of it seems like it's rooted in pain but also i hate the fact that it feels like as a cisgender gay man 
a lot of my battles have already been fought and I just get to live a life of privilege while right. I watch people that I care deeply fucking for getting their rights stripped away from them. And I'm like, I, I'm not under threat in the same way and I fucking hate it. But you have been. I have been, but really not even in my life. No, when sure, it, sure. It's not even like, and it's not even just cisgender people who are awful, like the awful cisgender people, like they're doing like anti-trans stuff. I mean, like, I, I always forget, maybe willingly so, how many people in the queer community are transphobic. Like, I oh saw, I came God, across I a Twitter profile, because, uh-huh. okay. you know, J.K. Rowling was fucking trending again, and I was like, oh well, why is she trending? Which I, I should have just known. Just don't. But yeah, like one of the replies is from, it was from a queer organization. It was called like LGB and their mission, their goal, their organization's mission was to remove the T from LGBT. That is their thing. I was like, what? (laughs) Those people can go straight to fucking hell. Oh yeah. Horrible. yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I have no time or patience for people who aren't willing to stand up for trans rights because it's like, that is where the fight is at right now. And if that doesn't concern you, then fuck you. You're done. I don't care to know you. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. (sighs) I also want to make clear just for anybody who's like looking for, I guess, familiarity or, you know, knowing who who has shared experiences. Like, I'm not trans in in the, you know, more traditional sense. I know you're not saying that as just just a clarification that, Mm -hmm. you know... I also understand where you're coming from in this feeling of like, you know, that barrier, right? Because I I would identify more in like the gender fluid kind of scale right. where mm-hmm. I just kind of like go between. I just feel how I feel at any moment. Mm-hmm. And it does make me feel that more impostery kind of section of, of just existence sometimes when we get to these conversations because it's like I still don't have the same struggles. Right. I can be much quieter about it and just, just feel what I feel. And it's just more if I wanted to talk openly with people, that's when I feel it and, you know, it starts to kick in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I uh, all of my friends who are binarily transitioning, mm-hmm. that just it just cuts me to pieces, basically, seeing what they have to go through and, mm-hmm. and knowing what they have to feel and just knowing, like, the percentage of how much I feel that way. Right. Comparatively, like, so I'm there with you on that level, too. So I do also understand that whole, like, outside looking in and going, like, fuck, you know? Yeah. And it's just, it's a nightmare. It's just a total nightmare the way people treat each other. Nevertheless, yeah. though, you even saying, it depends on how I feel. I feel this way one moment. I feel this way another moment. Like, that that to me is enough of an explanation to be like, okay, I get it. I mean, to an extent, I get it. Hmm. That's enough. And I, it's always so surprising to me. I don't know why it's surprising that that, that isn't enough for some people. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. And, you know, it's not like you even know in that. I mean, maybe some people do. But for me, it's like, unless I'm thinking about it or somebody were to ask me how I felt in that moment, I would realize just how am I talking to somebody? How am I presenting myself physically? Mm. How did this image of this person make me feel right now? Yeah. Right. You know, like, is there jealousy or is there attraction? I don't know. We're going to find out. <laughs> uh, and so it's like, well, you know, it's like sexuality or dysphoria. We'll find out today on <laughs> Gender. Oh, my God. <laughs> on every day in the life of Chandler. Mm-hmm, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Mrs. Oh. Chenandler Bong. Yes. Oh, many times in my life. Mm, you have no idea. Gosh. I'm sorry. I know you probably took it. And I grew up in the 90s, so thank you for that one. I'm just going to bring us back to the film now. Thank bring you. Bring us back to the film. <laughs> so, uh, in case we realize, oh shit, we don't have any kind of real male role models in this movie, let's get introduced to Oscar's dad, Larry, who is played by, I'm gonna say it's 
Pale Olufsen as opposed to Pale Olufsen. Yeah, that's probably yeah, right. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be Pala or Pale. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in my notes, I just refer to him as Swedish Keanu Reeves, which is like kind oh. of weird and rude. This is only seen in the movie, right? <laughs> uh, he's, he's got another one later. He does, yeah. Because um, Oscar tries to hide out in the country after that incident in the bunker with Ellie. Mm. Yeah. So Oscar's dad, Larry, does live in the country. And uh, this scene is just kind of like, it's a reprieve. Oscar gets to go and be a kid and just have fun out in the snow. And it's great. Okay, cool. It's so cool. And then we have to intercut this or jump back to the city so that we can see Hacken preparing to do another murder because it's like right this is the world that we're living in these things are happening simultaneously uh in a public fucking building too (laughs) yeah because he's desperate right Mm -hmm. so this is the equivalent of the grocery store scene with richard jenkins character in the remake where it's like i didn't have time to plan for this i'm kind of winging it and of course (laughs) it just absolutely goes to shit so Hacken strings up this boy, but he's interrupted. The boy wakes up, his friends find him, and boom, we are disfiguring ourselves with acid in a change room. I love the shot. It's before he does the acid, but when he's he's like sulking in the corner of the shower, and the wall dividing the rooms is like split is like yeah. split diopterizing the the, mm-hmm. the the frame for us. Yeah, and we can see him cowering on the left side of the screen, while on the right side we have the boy and his friends like rescuing yeah. him. Oh boy! Also, how wholesome is that? This boy had friends who were just like. I'll get you out. Yeah. Right? <laughs> My friends would not have done that. They would have been like, well, enjoy sleeping over at the school today. <laughs> Hang on one sec. I'm just going to take pictures and post them to social media. We might even take off your shorts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those were my friends. Yeah. <laughs> Who am I kidding? I didn't have God. friends. I was an oh. Oscar. <clears throat> yeah, I would like to think I have someone that would come back and check on me. Right? Yeah. Like, where's Trace gone? We haven't seen him in a while. Holy shit. He's strung up in the change room. What is going God. on? I know. (sighs) Okay, so uh, Oscar ends up, you know, returning back to the city. He's lifting weights with the coach. Um, Of course, we're still being bullied. So he finds that his pants have been left in the urinal and he has to walk home in his shorts. This is just to confirm, you know, hey, keep the bullying in front of mind because Mm -hmm. Oscar never gets away from it unless he goes to his father's. So Ellie, meanwhile, uh, has learned that Hacken has been taken to the hospital because it's been reported on the news. So they go to the hospital. They question the nurse. The nurse is like, hey, you 12-year-old child, what are you doing here? Ellie immediately gets the information that they need. And then before this nurse can even figure out, hmm, shouldn't you have a parent around? Ellie has scaled the seven stories up to Hacken's room. Okay, I wrote in my notes a handful of times, this should be on one perfect shot. <laughs> the, uh-huh. the One was the dog staring at him when he's bleeding. Like, mm-hmm. I, I love the composition of that shot. But, um, it. but yeah, it's, it's just that shot uh, of the nurse outside, like, at the foreframe. Yeah. With the hospital wall at the back with Ellie, like, mm-hmm. just hiding there. It, it is so perfectly staged yeah the scope is massive and it takes you almost a moment to realize not just that ellie is on the wall but how far up the wall they already are Mm -hmm. and then yeah you're right chandler when you described it's kind of like a spider we just see them crawling up i'm making a weird move that you can't see but you know (laughs) you know what i'm podcasting the visual medium (laughs) podcast the video the game show yes Now, so cool. And, like, have you ever seen a gecko like crawl up a wall? Mm. Gross, disgusting. Fuck off. 
Okay. <laughs> that is exactly, or like a salamander. That's exactly no, how they do it. Like, I don't need little... lizards of any kind in my brain. <laughs> wow. That's just how they do it. They're like, and they're up. That's what happens. I am like, blah. <laughs> I like I've learned a new thing that creeps you out today. It's it, it, are geckos the ones that are like the clear little baby things that like just run around your house because um your house uh maybe you have an infestation if that's well, happening. <laughs> you're talking about silverfish, Trace. I okay, think oh, so. No, no silverfish. No, 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 no. Won't go no. in an attic because of it. But no, no, no. Uh, in, okay. in Texas, yeah, we always like the, the geckos. Is the little tiny clear ones that always try to get inside yeah. because of the Texas heat. Yeah, exactly. They, they need a lot of moisture, so they Ugh. always try to get out of the heat. Whereas a salamander is always just like hanging around on the outside of a wall because they, they like the sun. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the slight deviation into like animal planet for a moment. Yeah. Right. I can. I cannot do frogs or lizards. I can do snakes if they're in captivity, but I cannot do frogs or lizards in any shape, way, or form. Oh, you are so weird. God, you're sometimes. in Texas. Damn. <laughs> I know. I know. In case you couldn't tell, I don't like camping, and I would not describe myself as outdoorsy. <laughs> this is true. Well, Ellie probably was because of the way they scaled that building. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah very adept at climbing. So yes. off they go. So this is great, though. I, I, this entire th- this honestly works as a short film to me. Like Ugh. from Ellie going and getting into the hospital to Hakan's fall, like it's just wonderful. It's like a perfect little five minute movie. I love mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And honestly, this really like rams home the tragedy of this Hakan character. We don't know almost anything about him. You know, I, I think there's enough information in the film for us to infer that there's a weirdness or an unhealthiness to the relationship, but we don't know how long they've been together. We don't actually know. Like, I've actually seen people mistake the relationship for, oh, this is their father, like Ellie's mm-hmm. father, mm. which is not accurate. But I'm pretty sure that even after the first time I saw the film, I knew that it wasn't a healthy relationship because of the way that Ellie talks later on. But yeah, I mean, there is at least an affection here when Ellie can't come in because of course you need to be invited and Hakan is just so eager to offer one last opportunity to connect with this creature that he's been caring for and I don't know it's sad and pathetic and when you know the backstory from the book at least it's really fucking gross that he just wants uh-huh. to be touched by this creature one last time that, that's the thing I, I, I prefer the movie reading which again to me is Hakan is was a child when they met and you know we're just right. following a cycle here as Oscar replaces Hakan mm-hmm. and while I'm not saying I don't even like <laughs> the pedophile approach that the book takes I, I appreciate that he's using like challenging and very upsetting material right. um, but not having read it I can't speak to how it plays but I just think poetically and thematically what the movie does is better mm-hmm. hmm. Hmm. I like them both on that level on the you know the, the more poetic level is i guess it's because i also like how the one of knowing hakan's uh you know it was always older and, and pedophilic it says a lot about ellie as mm-hmm. well mm. we are dealing with a monstrous creature and they do explore this with the other with you know later as we get with virginia and that power dynamic as well the fact that ellie will yes. shout at hakan and stuff we're not dealing with just a child you know like an adult in a child's body mm-hmm. you're dealing with a beast yeah, that's right. lived for a very long time i will say the film does allude 
to the relationship between Hakan and Ellie, but only in one tiny, teeny moment in the movie. Mm-hmm. And that's early on when he asks them to not see Oscar anymore. Right. Yeah. And all they do is put their knuckles on his cheek, which is the same cheek I do uh, I do believe that he burns off later, mm-hmm. but mm. just touches him and he just is euphoric. Yeah. And just how much that was. And Ellie's just like, this is your kindness. Yeah. You know? Like the, the contact is a thrill in and of itself yeah. because Hakan is so desperate for it. And yeah, like in the book, it's deeply uncomfortable because we're reading first person from Hakan's perspective Duh. and he's always just anxious. He wants to know if they can sleep together and if Ellie will take off their top so that they can have oh. like skin to skin contact. And you're just like, nope, this is pedophilia. Like oh. I'm having to live a pedophile's experience and I fucking hate it. I find that very interesting. Actually, not, sorry, not that you hate it. <laughs> it. No, it is interesting, but it's also it's so deeply unpleasant. Like you're you're right. gaining some insight, but you're just like, whoa, man. <laughs> yeah, but 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 Chandler, to, to respond to your point though, you could also read that moment as they they were once when Hakam was a child mm-hmm. able to not consummate their love because that's gross, but like like <laughs> to show sure. their affection yeah. more yeah. for each other, and he probably hasn't been able to do that with Ellie. Yes, since he was like. 16 probably mm-hmm. so he's lived his entire adult life in love with this this thing that he hasn't been able to show affection for since they met when they were children so mm-hmm. I, I could read it the same way yeah sure. and you can also read it in a more traditional vampire sense as well with a vampire and their thrall very mm-hmm. renfield oh, or their familiar yeah as well yeah but oh what you were just talking about joe just also makes something way more sense for me something that's never made sense to me was when ellie disrobes for Oscar mm-hmm. and crawls in the bed and Oscar's like, oh, you're, you're not wearing any clothes yes. and you're cold. That makes so much more sense because Ellie's response to it too is kind of like, you don't care? You don't really want this? Mm-hmm. Huh. It shows a different relationship there. Yeah. yeah, And it's also very clear in the book that Ellie is using it as a manipulation to continue getting Hakan to do what they want. Um, So they they will offer a touch or like, yes, I will take off my top for a moment so that Uh you can get what you need. It's, I mean, Ellie is is smart in that way. They know what they're doing. They're 200 years old. They better be. (laughs) Well, but again, right? Like sometimes 12, sometimes 200. (laughs) <laughs> all this to say the shot of hakan falling out of this window and then titanic hitting the sign Ooh, yeah it's horrifying and sad and i fucking love it because it's also gorgeous it's so good it is and him looking up into the stars just mm-hmm. lying there oh. well yeah. and it's interesting too because this is like i mean this movie's two almost two hours long yeah we're over halfway done with the movie by this point and like i i wouldn't even call this movie slowly paced but it doesn't feel like a lot has happened compared mm-hmm. to what's going to happen in the last 30 to 45 minutes of this movie. Yeah. Mm. I think it's because there's so much anticipation. Like, in some ways, you know that all of the bullying is going to have to come to a conflict. You know that Ellie is going to have to be revealed to Oscar so that we can do a kind of traditional mm-hmm. YA fall apart, come back together sort of deal. And this feels like a film that is so confidently paced. It's just saying, you know where we're going stick with us because we've got a banger of a finish yeah you don't know where it's going you have no idea can i oh when we get to this pool scene oh my god (laughs) i was not prepared the first time i saw this movie (laughs) not prepared 
we're not there yet. Um, okay, <laughs> so we we have to spend like a brief period of time with Lackey, who awakens. Uh, he's in bed with Virginia, and he realizes that Jacques was attacked by a child. So he's starting to put the pieces together. What is the thing that changed in the community? Oh, right, that new family moved in. Yeah, so this is when Ellie then invites themselves into Oscar's bed for this little naked cuddle. And they once again remind Oscar that they are not a girl and that they can only be together as long as things remain the same. Yeah. <laughs> Ellie, can you please explain more what you mean mm-hmm. <laughs> when you say I'm not? Like, this is a 12 year old boy that you're talking to. <laughs> like, you need to tell him flat out this is what's happening, this is what uh-huh. I am, because. Like, PowerPoint presentation, or I guess whatever the, the little rotating slide machine was back then. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, can we spell it out in a microfiche, perhaps? Yeah. There you go, microfiche. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where I'm going to bring in a reference. So I think I've mentioned this person before on the pod. I can't remember where, but it's a blog called Fashionable Tinfoil Hats written by Vry Kaiser. And Vry has written a piece called Let the Right One In is a Queer Vampire Story. And they specifically talk about this moment Ellie is quite obviously transcoded in the fluidity of their presentation and rejection of binary gender descriptors, which is an exciting thing for trans readers. It's also deeply fraught, because Ellie's gender is irrevocably tied to a mutilation which explicitly and implicitly robs them of choice. They had no choice in becoming a vampire, no choice in whether or not to grow up, no control over their body. They are symbolically robbed of gender by being forced to stay a prepubescent child, which is represented as being literally robbed of their genitals. That... So there's okay. a lot there. And I, I should reference that this is actually more in relationship to the book, but anticipating mm-hmm. the reveal scene in the film. Mm-hmm. The reason that I was drawn to this particular quote is because I've always applied a very black and white read to this text. Like, okay, so Ellie is a female presenting character who was once a boy. And when you start to read it as especially when you bring in the the backstory in the book about how it's revealed that Ellie was once Elias and that, yes, sold into sex slavery, castrated against their will. And Linkvis, as an author, does a really weird thing in the book where we use she pronouns up until that reveal, and then the rest of the book, Ellie uses male pronouns. So, okay. Okay. For the movie, because... the only time I've seen vampires without or sans genitalia, it was in The Strain. And the book right. The Strain would come out the year after this movie came out. Okay. So I, whenever I saw this movie, I always just assumed it was like, <laughs> for, again, for lack of a better phrase, that Ellie's genitalia just disappeared or fell off, depending on what it was. But that might be just because of the strain feeding into my mind with that. So I, I never took into account like, oh, like Ellie was castrated at one point prior to the events of the movie. Mm. I don't know. It, it's also really hard for the film as well. I remember the first time I saw it too. It's just like, for one, it's just like, whoa, why, why was this relevant? Why are you showing me this uh, right. shot of like the lower half of a, of a naked child? A mannequin, essentially. Yeah, it was a mannequin. Thank goodness. But still, it's just kind of like, I just remember it being like, okay, oh yeah, 
2008, you had to have a shock moment in your movie, didn't you? That's kind of how it felt. Yeah, I have seen people even be like, oh, this movie has a little sleepaway camp moment. And I was like, okay, Okay. fuck. Actually, I am getting some sleepaway camp vibes from a lot of different things, but for different reasons than most probably will. Well, there's no camp here, right? Like, that's the big distinction. For one, yes. Thank you. That is a very good distinction. Uh, But there's also, like... um, and you, I know you also probably mean camp on the tonal sense. Of it. <laughs> yeah, there's no camp and there's no camp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so very few hot dogs and pots in this movie. <laughs> uh, exactly. But uh, for instance, even just uh, Lackey's character and how he's walking around is like, it's got to be this kid. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kill this kid. Really reminds me of the owner of the camp counselor of just like suddenly just on a switch, like I'm going to kill a child. Huh. Right. It's, it's going to like bare hand find this child and murder them. Uh, and then of course, the, the very muddy almost pseudo trans allegory but not really committing to it you know kind of story mm. that's in there but of right. course if you were to look at it as like one and one oh my god they are the same no no but yeah, i see i see why people what people were picking up on shared dna right shared dna i love that i do love that but it is true on the, the first watch of the film though i think even a lot of viewers needed the same thing that we're saying the oscar needs which is the whole like a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> was one. Yeah, was once boy is no longer presenting as boy. Yeah, you know, please spell it out. But and so when adapting the screenplay, so so they didn't really address so much the lack of an explanation for Ellie's backstory, like from from page to screen. The reason that they didn't do the Hakan pedophilia stuff was because uh, Alfredson was like, "There's no way no. in this two-hour movie we can devote enough time to satisfactorily handle a pedophilia subplot." No. I get that. So we yeah. opted to leave it out, and I was like, "That makes sense." And I wonder, I wonder if it was the same thing for Ellie's backstory. But then at that point, it begs the question: well, Why, keep why this? have it have yeah. it in here at all? Yeah, exactly. It's such a blink in you. I guess it's more fan service, I suppose. If you were a fan of the book, then you're like, "See, it is well adapted." Yeah. Mm. These conversations happened around it. Uh-huh. I mean, I'll, I'll confess, I had a bit of a an embarrassing moment back in the past where when Faculty of Horror covered this and they delved into the relationship between the book and the film and they said, you know, so we can look at this film as, as a trans or a queer narrative. And I said, oh, well, you know, if you're going to bring in stuff from the book that's not really in the film, then I think you're like, <laughs> like I was very... <laughs> There's the Joe that I know. <laughs> fucking asshole me. And you know, I, I'm ashamed of thinking that because A, like, hello, I devoted an entire podcast to doing just that. Mm. But also, it's so tricky because I think the film, in a way, is actually playing it sly. And I apologize to this person because I can't remember where I read it. But Trace, I ended up sending you something that actually sees this as a positive thing, where you could look at Ellie as a person who was looking to transition and was able to do it in a way that they could. Because if you look at this as a period piece, you're not going to be a 12-year-old child who gets to transition. Mm -mm. And yet, if we look at Ellie as a person who wanted to present as female, but was born male, but could survive a transition because of vampirism, Mm. then all of a sudden this becomes a celebratory text. I like that one. I like that one more. But 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 that's where the ambiguity of the film comes into play, right? Absolutely. Now, granted, do I think that uh, that Linkvist or Alfredson were taking a lot of that no. into consideration? No. <laughs> but no. but if you can find if, if you can find and subscribe to that positive reading in this film, then mm-hmm. by all fucking means, do and it. You're not wrong. Yeah. And don't let anybody tell you that you are, because 
They're going by what's in the movie. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's why the end of the film ends up having these multiplicity of readings, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you can just as easily say, oh, this is hopeful. We've got a pair of outcasts who go off and enjoy the world together in the same breath as somebody could say, no, this is the saddest possible fucking outcome for Oscar ever. Yeah. 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 (sighs) Okay. So in the morning, Ellie is gone, but they have left Oscar a note, which so beautiful in terms of poetry to flee is life to linger death yeah it kind of sums up the movie in a nutshell for me yeah um but you know what we need to go on a field trip so (laughs) we are gonna go to the lake everybody's gonna be skating this is where oscar gets his one good whack in on connie and oh boy is it satisfying to watch this fucker go down even as i'm like it's a 12 year old child you need oh, to rein no, it in. no fuck that <laughs> fuck that i mean again, i want to see this kid's head ripped off at the end yeah Fair. this watching him cry is it's so, so <laughs> exquisitely beautiful <laughs> they're terrible people but also this fucking kid deserved it i'm sorry oh, yeah, yeah no I also, it's like this kid too, there's nothing about this kid other than his confidence Mm -hmm. that makes him a threat to anybody. Right. It's it's posse to do all the work. Oh, yeah. He's this frail little doe-eyed kid himself. I think Oscar could take him if he tried. Mm. And I I love that though. Those are most of my bullies too. I had like one or two who I was like, oh, Christ, it's the Terminator. But a few of them were pretty much just good at making you feel so worthless that you didn't even try. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. And Connie's power is that he has acolytes who will do the hard work for him, right? Like, there's a reason he never gets his hands dirty. And it's the reason why as soon as Oscar takes him down, nothing else happens. At least not until Jimmy steps in later. Yeah, We even see the power dynamic shift in a way that is just mm, delicious, satisfying. (laughs) I can have this meal every Mm, fucking day of watching this little ass bully be like, hey, give me your hat. Hey, no, I said I want... What? Give me the fucking... Okay. Why he's not giving me the hat? <laughs> I love that scene so much. It's like a few scenes later, but I just... Yeah. This is the moment that just shatters the entire armor that Connie has, and it's beautiful. Right. Well, and I love, too, that this this isn't the kind of big power move that it could be like this isn't oscar's moment to reclaim his authority and like potentially get torn down because mr avila catches him in action or something like this is the big moment but then it's undercut by oh shit we just found a man's body over here (laughs) where the preschoolers are so you're just like right because we still have two stories going on we've got this teenage bully story going as well as vampires and bodies piling up in this small community Uh so yeah so jacques body is exhumed oscar gets into big trouble with his mom but he's like yeah fuck off i don't care (laughs) this is when he realizes ellie's advice was great so he feels fantastic he invites ellie down (laughs) to this bunker and proposes a blood pack and it does not go well and this is one of the very clear instances where we see the transition to the older actress as ellie hops onto that floor and just licks up that blood yep so they end up running away and because they have tasted blood and they are super hungry because their familiar is dead and they haven't fed in a little bit Unfortunately, Virginia, who has stormed out of Gusta's place after Lackey <laughs> drunkenly insulted her, blah, 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 adult drama. Who she's cares? in the wrong place yeah. at the wrong time. And we get exactly. this gorgeous shot of Ellie just falling on top yes. of her. Yeah. It is so cool. <laughs> oh, boy. That is terrifying. Because like she is just walking home. 
like a big ass spider is what they do. You walk mm-hmm. in, no, you, 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 you're on me. I God, just, I love Chandler, so much spider talk on this episode. <laughs> Sorry. It, but it, it's here. that weightless leap that they do yeah. that, 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 yeah. that we saw from them earlier. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. And this is where, you know, sometimes it's easy to forget that Ellie is super powerful and capable of a lot of destruction. And then we get these kinds of scenes where it's like, oh, yeah, they just took out a full grown woman in clear sight of everybody because Lackey is right behind Virginia and basically boots Ellie off of her and then, (laughs) uh, you know, takes Virginia to the hospital and so on. Yeah. So the next morning, Virginia has begun to... Sorry, he doesn't take her to the hospital. He takes her to bed. And (laughs) Which, mistake number one. Right? I get that she doesn't seem too too torn up but like she does have a a fairly substantive hickey on the neck sadly yes because we didn't go to the hospital we didn't run any tests so virginia begins to change the next day she discovers that she burns in the sun and she basically just wants to stay in bed but you know there's there's fun audio stuff where she can hear everything and she's very sensitive uh, and again, going back to the sound design, the sound of her peeling the bandage off of her neck mm-hmm. um, is very gross. Yeah. And then, yeah, she sniffs that blood and she's like, hmm, I might like that. Yeah. <laughs> so in the book, she actually spends a couple of days and it's almost like she's going into withdrawal from drugs. Mm. So there's a bunch of really uncomfortable scenes where she will cut herself so that she can drink her own blood. But she starts wow. to realize over time that it doesn't actually satisfy her. And that's when she has to leave and go and find a victim. Uh, I am happy they sped it up in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's cool, but time is different. Yeah. Yeah. So once again, we're sort of cross-cutting between these two parallel narratives. So Oscar has sought refuge with his father in the country. And I'm curious about this because I never caught on to it until this most recent rewatch. It's very much presented that Oscar's dad is a drunk and Oscar doesn't like it when this friend comes over and they start to drink too much. So the simple read is, oh, Oscar loses his dad to this friend. Mm-hmm. Do y'all get a bit of a queer vibe from this friend showing up and all of a sudden it's very chummy and I'm not hmm. saying no, I just didn't really consider it and I don't remember the scene well enough to mm-hmm. make a statement on it. Okay. I mean, I, w- I watched it right before we started recording and I I, well, I didn't in the moment without you mention it. The quickness with which the father is like, "Oh, grabs the vodka." Mhm. But Oscar's like, we were playing a game. He's like, uh... Yeah, kid, you're dead to me. Yeah. This dude's here. Oh. He get, mm-hmm. he coaxes his own child to be like, but let's be friendly to my guest, who's way more important than anything we were doing. Mm-hmm. And the <laughs> smile on the guy's face. I, I can see it. I can see it. I didn't find it overt. Yeah. But I think that reading can easily be applied yeah yeah like in in the book it's very just oh he's an alcoholic and the mom had enough of it so this is the best he could do like he he moved out because it's cheaper to live in the country and so on but the film definitely it has a little bit of that like because we're seeing it in a visual medium you can kind of infer some glances in the way that it works out but one way or another Oscar decides to bail on his dad in the middle of the night. So he hitches a ride back to the city. And at the same time, this is when Virginia is going to Gusta. And <laughs> it's it's really mean. Like, Gusta's kind of an outcast among the adults who go to the bar in the book. And 
she basically just picks on him because she's like, well, nobody will really miss him all that much. He's just the dude with all the cats. It's interesting, too, we have a male character with all the cats because you don't see that very often. True. Not in North America. Ooh, yes, yes, yes. Gotcha. So needless to say, this does not go well for Virginia, because as we know, (laughs) the cats do not like vampires. So cue the CGI army of cats (laughs) and she gets taken to the hospital. It really is. I mean, I don't want to harp on this too much, but it really is surprising that as precise as Alfredson is with every single shot of this movie, Mm -hmm. that this like he couldn't find a better way to do this scene. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like it's crunched just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it was either budget or, yeah, we didn't have time or we thought we could do it and we've wrapped the film and we send it off to post-production with the FX team and this is what they come back with. I don't yeah. know, but they have like puppets as well because they wanted to get that thing that cats do when they want to bite you all aggressively, how they like rear their head back and mm-hmm. chomp. So they have this little animatronic at her ankle is like, and goes into it. But I, I just felt like, yeah, like I said early on in our recording, is like you've had older movies do way more effective way than just jobs. jump yeah. shots between real cats. And and see, Joe, and like not to harp go all the way back to Piranha, but like that's why, like, because I I know I tend to be more forgiving of bad CGI than you do, but in a movie like this, mm-hmm. I am less forgiving of it because yeah. everything else around it is like not lending itself to shitty cheesy CGI as opposed yeah. to something like Piranha. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it totally makes sense because I find when I think about this film and the American remake, the big detractors are these two big moments of FX work that just don't mm-hmm. work because they're not mm-hmm. seamless in the way that the rest of the film is grounded. Yeah, exactly. It's like if we if we were doing FX shit all the time, we mm-hmm. probably wouldn't care because it'd be like, yeah, OK, this is what the rest of the film is. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So, yeah, um, so I'm just going to dedicate a portion, even though in the film it continues to kind of intercut between stuff that Ellie is doing and the Virginia Lackey stuff. We're just going to deal with the Virginia Lackey stuff so we can be done with it. Yeah. So I have these tender moments as he talks about, like, the life they wanted to have together in the hospital. And (laughs) she is like, I'm infected and I want to die. So she basically gets him out of the room so that she can self-immolate by getting this poor orderly to open the window. I love that this woman also goes up with Virginia. Like, Mm -hmm. bitch, you couldn't even let her get out of the room? Well, and again, we get that that wide shot that's so beautiful as she goes up in flames. Is this done equally as good or better in the remake? Because I don't remember how this plays in the remake. It is uh, about the same, except that the nurse doesn't get caught in the damage. Okay. yeah i kind of preferred because yeah. i was just like i mean you can't blame virginia she doesn't actually know what's going to happen she just knows that it's going to kill her uh-huh. i don't think she realized she was going to set the entire fucking room on fire mm. i'm happy that she did though i oh, think it's one of the most God. gorgeous shots oh, yeah, so cool. <laughs> like isn't it funny that we're highlighting all these moments of violence and we're like this shot is so fucking good mm-hmm. i mean it is my thing right <laughs> Jen was like, oh, this is my brand. So, uh, welcome to my podcast, everybody. Yeah, if you like this, head on over to the Beauty of Four. Oh, 
Uh, okay, so let's jump back to Ellie and Oscar. So when Oscar returns, he actually goes directly to Ellie, and they end up spending the night. So this is when Ellie reveals that they're actually rich. Um, at school, the next day, Oscar sees that Connie is actually the victim of bullying from his older brother, Jimmy, who is played by Rasmus Lethander. And then, yeah, we get this fantastic demonstration later by Ellie about what happens if they're not invited in. And I feel like this is the moment that the film really tries to sell itself in all the promotional materials. But even like, I think the trailer, this is like one of the big standout moments. Well, and so a detail about this. So yeah, this is uh, apparently a key passage in the novel. Mm Mm-hmm. Alfredson actually wanted to omit this from the film. Oh. What? Lindquist was adamant that it had to be included. And yeah. he was, Alfredson was nervous about the scene, but he realized in post-production that the sound effects and music made it American in a bad way. That's a oh. quote. Hmm. It had to be removed for the scene to work. But the end result, which obviously shows Ellie slowly beginning to bleed from their eyes, ears, and pores, mm-hmm. received positive notices from many critics. So even in the film, like in the final cut, he was still like, I don't really want this in there. Right. But then it got a good reception. Yeah. The interesting thing about the book and the film, the Swedish version, is that Ellie bleeds from everywhere so as you said it's their pores and in the american version they really water it down so that it's like basically orifices so it's eyes and nose and ears and there's just something so much more ominous about the idea like in the book you're getting passages where their entire shirt is getting covered in blood because they're seeping out of like their arms and stuff and the close-up of ellie's scalp in the Mm -hmm. movie that, that that's the one that gets me where i'm like Hoo! yeah so so good in the stage play so for me yeah that final scene is really impressive especially knowing you know we learned how to snorkel and, and right. all the things that you need to do for it but this was the most visually impressive thing because i was sitting there the whole time like there's no way yeah they can't there's do no it. way you're gonna put and they freaking did i mean it depends on the night how well the wig and stuff looked but they do such a good job of slipping it on to the actress that's really? playing that you don't even really notice it and hmm. then as she steps in, like, I don't know what she was. I think she had like a hose in her hand. Right. And was squeezing yeah. something kind of like those old screen masks that mm-hmm. would bleed. Oh, the, yeah. But the, the bleed, the knives even. <laughs> yeah. And then she had, you know, blood capsules and stuff to have it coming out of her mouth. But right. just pouring all over her face so she could like tilt her head back and get it into her eyes oh, to amazing. make it look like it's coming out of her eyes. Like the choreography was phenomenal to make that work real time. The audience were just like, <gasps> Yeah. Oh, what, what the fuck is going on? And, and Joe, that's what you're saying too about like horror being adapted to the stage because like, you don't see like action movies be adapted to the stage, but mm-hmm. horror is the first thing. It's like there's effects work going in there. And right. so it's like part of the fun of going to see that is just see like, how are they going to capture this 100%. in real time yeah. on yeah. stage in front of a live fucking audience? <sighs> mm-hmm. It's magical. So yeah, if, if Let the Right One In tours in your neighborhood, anyone, uh, go see it. Oh my god, you two are selling this on me so hard, and I'm <laughs> so really <good>. jealous. <laughs> Important to note, too, that after Ellie, I mean, again, we could argue that this is Ellie trying to sell themselves to Oscar, saying, okay, you wanted the slideshow, you wanted the microfiche reveal, this is what I actually am. But I love that they follow it up by saying that they're not evil. They just do what's required of them to live. Which is like innate animal instincts, right? Like that's just going back to like just basic needs. But also to me, I'm like, okay, well, that is so fucking queer. Mm. This is who Mm. I am. 
I can't control it. This is what I have to do to live. This is me. It's my authentic self. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here like, you've been alive for 200 years. I think you can die now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I could not imagine being 12 for 200 years. Like, No, it sounds no. horrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So Ellie gets cleaned up and Oscar briefly, yes, this is when we get the the reveal, the secret reveal. <laughs> this is also the moment that Lackey's starting to put things together. So after Ellie and Oscar have spent the night together, Lackey arrives in the morning because he is he has realized what he saw was Ellie jumping on Virginia and so he is there to kill them, but instead Ellie just immediately takes him into the bathroom and takes care of him. And we do get a bloody kiss here when Oscar says goodbye. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, this is good. But again, at this point, I'm like, I don't care about this Lockie stuff anymore. Like, let's let's move this on. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And they do. Yeah. Yeah. Important to note that when the remake does this, uh, this is the Elias Codius detective character because there is no lackey character because they get rid of a lot of that shit. Well, it makes more sense, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, I hate having cops in my horror movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. Oh, yeah. There's whole scenes in the American remake where uh, he's showing up to the Richard Jenkins Hakan character being like, we're going to find out who you are. We're going to fingerprint you. We're going to facial ID you. And I'm just like, snooze. God. Yeah, no. Huh. Okay, so Oscar goes home after having spent the night out somewhere after having abandoning his dad and not telling his mom. So she flips <laughs> out. And this is basically also when Ellie is saying, okay, I can't be here anymore. So they have left by cab. And Oscar cries. And then he gets a phone call from Martin. Martin is one of Connie's bully friends. He's played by Michael Erhardson. And Martin says, hey, we've been missing you. Are you going to come to training tonight? Because we'd really like to see you. You should definitely come. It's absolutely not a trap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, I think Oscar's feeling a bit vulnerable. So he decides he is going to go. And this enables Connie and his older brother, Jimmy, as well as the others, to execute a plan. They set a dumpster on fire to draw Mr. Avila away. And then Jimmy orders Oscar to stay underwater for three minutes or he will gouge out his eye. This is horrific. Uh Uh-huh. Like... Okay, a twisted part of me wants him to just fucking do it so I can see the repercussions that happens to this kid. Like, you want him to disfigure Oscar so that Jimmy just gets everything coming to him. I guess I really... Do y'all think he would have actually done this? I 100% yes. think he would have done 100%. it. 100%. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, it just, we, we haven't seen this character, but well, we have, but it's like briefly before. Barely. Yeah. But it's the thing where I'm like, I guess he doesn't care about any consequence. I, my, my mind cannot wrap around this fact. It's like, dude, you are going to go to jail if you stab this kid's eye out. Mm-hmm. Except, like, I get the vibe that this is a dude who is into a lot of crime shit. You know, uh, the fact that Connie gets really uncomfortable at that moment. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I just wanted you to scare the poor boy. I, yeah. you know, maybe make him get some water inhalation, but well, yeah, you know what? You're my older brother. I can't say no to you. That's the weight. Absolutely. In the book, the Jimmy character is actually named something else, but he's not only involved in like local gang activity, uh, so he does have a, a bit more of a sullied reputation. Mm-hmm. Remember how I mentioned how Oscar lit the classroom on fire? Uh-huh. 
So it turns out that uh, the Jimmy character and Connie, they have an estranged father and they only have like one picture of him and it gets destroyed in the classroom fire. So they're feeling extra vindictive that Oscar has basically ruined their family relationship. I kind of like that, but at the same time, well, do I need to feel any understanding for these bullies anymore? Not really. I like this more. A lot. In fact, he he, he kind of reminds me of oh, I forget the character's name, but the kid in it is chasing them all down. Oh, Patrick Hoxted oh. or uh, uh, no? Um, no, no. Harry uh, Henry Henry Bowers. Bowers. Yeah. How in the book Henry Bowers is just like carving his name into people's stomachs. And right. Stuff. Yeah. That's the level of like fucked up. I own this town that I feel from Jimmy here, mm-hmm. and I like that. Again, this is a movie that. It makes things feel a bit more real, especially from the eyes of a child. So if right. ever you've been in a situation where you're just like, who the hell are you? And they're like way worse. Mm-hmm. Or you don't even know that you're hanging around somebody that is like on the FBI's wanted list right. and stuff like yeah. that. You know, I love that he just kind of shows up and then, you know, you learn a little bit about Connie. But the big takeaway here is like this world is mm-hmm. intricate and Oscar has no idea what he's stepping into. So Ellie's yeah. advice, for instance, this is what I mean. Be smart. Know your shit before you throw that fist at a kid because you don't know. You don't know who their who's older brother in is. their social circles. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. But I'm tell I'm telling y'all, and again, I said this earlier because I feel the same way about Carrie. I want them to look at him and be like, "Oh my god, we fucked up. We fucked up." Yeah. Th- 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 this creature is doing this to us because of you. I'm so sorry. Please. I want them begging for their lives. Again, and Carrie, where I'm like, <laughs> I know all these kids are fucking dying, but I want them to look at Carrie and be like, oh my God, she's the one doing this. Carrie, please stop. I, I want that. And I know I know that we don't have time for that shit. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> you want the begging. Wanted... You want the moment of like realization. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if, if maybe y'all don't need that catharsis but like that 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 moment of realization provides so much catharsis for mm-hmm. me but mm-hmm. i guess that's more you're gonna get that in a revenge film which this isn't really a revenge film but still <laughs> carrie kind of is though so i do agree with you that like and also i guess it's just them being a little bit older and being a bit more autonomous right in their yeah actions like they're getting over that hump of puberty where it's like okay the hormones aren't making you do everything anymore you're just a fucking asshole yeah <laughs> you know so with carrie i i agree i would have loved for some people to be like well we had this coming whereas in this movie <laughs> i kind of like that we get to see just how vicious ellie can get without right. them showing it yeah oh my God. what did they see the feet dragging across the surface of the water is <laughs> so good from a clearly dead body too because it yeah. wasn't kicking nothing no Ugh. That moment was honestly revelatory to me. I didn't know what to expect. You know it's going to come to some kind of violent end, right? Like, the minute that we see them light the garbage fire, as soon as we see Martin call him, we know it's going to go bad. And it's just a question of who's going to save him. Because at this moment, we honestly do think that Ellie could be gone. And I, I just remember thinking, what if this movie ends with Oscar getting an eye gouged out? Like, what if there is no happy ending for him? <laughs> and then you think, well, okay, well, we'll see what happens regardless when his head comes out of water. And then it yeah. doesn't happen because we're too busy suddenly realizing, oh, there are feet there. Oh, that's a head. Oh, that's a hand. <laughs> Holy fucking shit. This movie came <laughs> to play. It did. And then the stage play, now we can come to it. The way they do this is just, it's a smaller tank. They really just focus in on Oscar's 
viewpoint here. So they just have a tank that's big enough for the kid mm-hmm. to be in. But they all have the scaffolding that they've been using throughout the entire film to get that height that we've been talking about and have Ellie up above him a lot right. throughout the film. So they just put a curtain uh, right. over where everybody is up there. But they do have them up there to show you from Oscar's perspective what it's like to look up at these kids doing these things to him. And then you do have the older brother hold his head down and he holds his breath. Mm-hmm. They cover everything. And so I don't know how they switch it out. It's like a magic trick. That hand is on him the whole time. You see them push him in. Mm-hmm. And they said they learned a lot of illusionist stuff to do this. Mm. So you see him push him in. They put the curtain over him. And you just see, like, the foot fall in. And you have, like, blood splash. And you hear all the screaming. And then the hand just detaches. Wow. <laughs> it's so good. I don't know when they switched the hands, but it's so good. It's, yeah. It, 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 it's, I would say movie magic. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, it is, right? It is, though. Yeah, on stage. They use yep. proper movie magic to kind of trick you. And it's yep. wonderful. It's so good. I love that. It's like, oh, I came for a show, but I also got an illusion act. Yeah. Just a little one. Harry Dumore would be proud. (laughs) (sighs) Um, Yeah. So Oscar eventually realizes that he is not being held underwater anymore. He surfaces and Ellie's bloody face is waiting to greet him as well as everybody is dead except one character. I think it might be Martin. Who could care? No, it's not Martin. Wait, is Martin the one that was... um? That, like, called him there? Yes. No, he's definitely no. dead. Okay. He's very, very, very dead. It's the blonde one. Yeah, I, it's I don't the blonde think they one. He's, the just sitting, he's just sitting crying on the, on the bleachers while all these decapitated bodies are around him. Mm-hmm. So important to note, in the American remake, it's far less satisfying because only the Jimmy and Connie characters get killed. And you're just like, no, no, I need all of these kids to be murdered. Mm-hmm. You know, scarred up. I'm actually okay with just the brothers getting killed. <laughs> really? I I don't even know you. Who are you? What is your thought process here? Only because I love the idea of these other two that maybe they're still horrible bullies, but they're not as bad bullies okay. being traumatized for life. Oh, yeah. so you want them to have the long game? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, like what the fact of the matter is, remember we're talking about killing people for revenge. Getting your head ripped off, that's a pretty easy out. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I also like the story they're kind of telling with it, too, because although I do think Martin does deserve it in this movie, mm-hmm. Martin. so if you go back to when they're thwacking Oscar with the stick, right? that blonde one was the first one to get the hits, and they have this non-committal kind of like, eh, oh, right, on, yeah. on his mm. boots. They just kind of kind of like, eh, on his jeans. And then they give it to Martin, and he's just like, should I? And Connie kind of nods, and that's when you get the one hit on the uh, cheek. So okay. Martin has drawn blood. Right. Martin has participated. It just Martin kind of pusses out there at the end. Whereas this one kid is just like, I don't know, man. I'm just hanging out with you because you're scary. Right. Basically. I thought we were just going to play, like, Super Nintendo after this. I didn't realize we were yeah. hanging around here so that we could beat this kid. Your brother gets pizza. <laughs> I, like, I, just, I had different priorities today. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. So at this point, the film is nearly done. We repeat the opening scene. So we're back to a black sky with white snow falling. And then we transition and suddenly it's a day. Suddenly we're inside a train car. We're on the move. And Oscar is, yes, in a train. He's seated with a large trunk, tapping out Morse codes to Ellie inside. And this is where we leave them. They're... On to destinations unknown, onto a life that we don't know. We have no idea what, if anything, Oscar told his mom. The future is completely uncertain. All right, so, Novella, what, what's up? 
Okay, so <laughs> I don't know the specifics because it's actually really hard to track down, but I can tell you that it's set in the future when Oscar is older, but he has been turned into a vampire. So oh, okay. it's a lot more hopeful oh. and romantic because you get the idea that they will grow old or not together. See, I was getting the vibe. Okay. I remember when it first came out, the discourse on that and the debates that I had with a lot of my friends. And I, the more I've watched it, the more I felt like the both kind of angle, just mm-hmm. because the one detail there that's in the film, so this is not considering the book at all, is right. just that we see, you know, like I said, the back of the hand for Hakan. And he's like, oh, and that's enough. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Oscar, they're talking to each other through Morse code and communicating. Mm-hmm. Do you know what they say at the end of the movie? What they're actually, you know, using Morse code to say? I always assumed it was like, are you doing okay? Or I no, love no. you. No, because you could obviously use Morse code to figure it out. And it's, uh, well, this is hilarious. It just spells out puss. But apparently in uh, Swedish, that means small kisses. I, I knew uh, that from the Wikipedia plot. Okay. okay. <laughs> so it's like kiss, kiss that they're doing for each other. And I'm like, that is so amazingly sweet hell the first thing we ever see him they even put it in the subtitles so one thing they put in subtitles to show that he gets interrupted first thing he ever says to ellie is sweet dreams right Aww. so they say like really nice little sweet things to each other mm-hmm. and we don't see ellie interact with anybody this way that is true yeah it kind of torpedoes our assertion that Oscar is being groomed for a terrible life of committing murders for this oh, no, no, no. vampire. That has to happen too, though. <laughs> but, but, but it makes more sense in the book, given that that that, that you know what, exactly what Hakan's relationship with Ellie is. Mm-hmm. In yeah. the movie, though, it's because we don't. I think we have to infer, though, don't we? Like, isn't that the default reading that, you know, well, yeah, there's this hopeful optimism because... Oscar is so young and he feels like he's found someone who truly understands him and is going to protect him. But as any kind of adult would know, no, he's basically signed up for a life of indentured servitude. True. But I think I guess the difference here, and this is inferring from the film as well, is that Ellie has never given Hakan any of that. Mm. It's pure just, I'm in the room with you. It's a one way right. infatuation and Ellie's preying on it. Whereas with Oscar, that first line, I can't be friends with you. It's just the whole, like, I like this kid already and I don't know why and I just want to, I don't want to move on. Right. They've warmed to him in a different way yeah. than they had with Hakan. Yeah. And Ellie's also kind of vulnerable because, as right. you say, the film ends with what we can assume is the beginning of Ellie's story. Yes. You know, at the start of the film, it's running away from something right. and it's all messed up. And then you have this kid, you're like, I'm, I'm just passing through, kid. Don't even talk to me. Mm. And then Oscar's just kind of cute about things. And Ellie's like, So why are you like, uh, stabbing trees and all <laughs> want to talk so, about what's that? your deal kid <laughs> yeah oh crap i'm getting involved damn it damn it i said i wasn't gonna do this again <laughs> you know and i i quite like that reading as well where you can have a both situation where it's like poor oscar you've got a pretty fucked up life ahead of you mm-hmm. and uh but i did you know it, it kind of has that what we do in the shadows thing of the like the series of how guillermo is constantly like please make me into a vampire and i got the feeling that ellie would be the one to be like well that's what this is all about right you yeah. know Huh. I just love too that, you know, the film gives us always enough for us to understand what's going on and maybe even anticipate, but also it doesn't really give us too, too many answers. Like it's just not Mm-mm. interested in doing that. And this ending is perfectly on point for that, right? But that yeah. makes it so much more fun and, and, and oh, to God, me yeah. easier to make 
any reading and accept any reading of this yeah. film. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. again, you, like you know, we'll always accept most readings, but it's easier for me personally if if the film is more ambiguous like right. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um yeah, that is let the right one in. <laughs> any more thoughts you want to get out here? Chandler, as the guest of honor, you can go first. Oh, well, thank you. It's just uh, such a beautiful, powerful film. I liked that what you already mentioned with its reception as well, that it's considered in the top list of like cinema, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I, I just think that, that if anybody who hasn't seen this one and they know, maybe you've seen the American remake and it's good, it's decent. I would not give it that sort of an accolade. But Matt Reeves did direct the hell out of that film. Yeah. But it just there's something special about this one. It was at the time when Swedish cinema was just kind of blowing up everywhere and, you know, warping people's minds. It was like, oh, my God. And it, for a good reason. So I just think that the ambiguity in this film is so on point. I do feel that there's an intentionality behind it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes it so special is that it's not a situation where you have a director copping out by going like, huh, I mean, it asks questions, doesn't it? Right. In this case, I think there are a finite amount of answers that you can apply, and it's just kind of a pick-your-or-choose-your-own-adventure story. And uh, on top of that, it's just a wonder to behold for a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I really, really like this film. It's only the second time I've seen it. I saw it back when it came out, and I liked it. Um, but, you know... 22-year-old Trace was like, yeah, it's good. (laughs) Uh, 22-year-old Trace strikes again. (laughs) But I mean, I still gave it a three and a half, but like I bumped it up this time. And uh, again, I I really appreciated the cinematography so much more on this round. Like that really, really, really like hammered this movie home for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, no, I uh, I agree with everything y'all are saying. I really like it. Yeah. It's just, it's so impressively beautiful and kind of understated. I think it offers us an alternative to the louder, more bombastic, sort of traditional American way of doing things. And that's not Mm -hmm. to throw any shade at Matt Reeves, but like he does insert more US style violence in his adaptation. And he makes some interesting creative visual decisions in terms of his direction. But something I love about this movie is how slow and deliberate and just, yeah, cold and romantic and sad it is. I find it's a really emotionally evocative film. And for all of those reasons and many, many more, this is actually one of my, like, probably top 10 favorite horror films of all time. Mm. I just think that there's so much to discuss and appreciate about it. Yeah, I would agree. (sighs) Well... Before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Chandler, let everyone know where they can find you on social media. Uh, sure, yeah. Most social medias, you can find me under my name, Shockaholic, which is kind of like my company name, but you have to do it specifically. So for Twitter and for Instagram, it's at underscore Shockaholic. It's one word. And of course, there is my podcast that is The Beauty of Horror, which is at Beauty Horror Pod on most social media platforms. Mm-hmm. Also, thank you for coming on to this. This has been a wonderful discussion on this film. Yes. Thank you. My pleasure and delight, really. (laughs) Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. Join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners or, as we said earlier, maybe (laughs) (laughs) non-listeners. There we go. Also find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Uh, go to our YouTube channel to see our monthly Horror Queers Hangouts, where we chat various horror topics with some of our peers, and of course have interviews with uh, some filmmakers. Right. 
If you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Music or Spotify. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are now in April, uh, so go subscribe to get episodes on Robert Eggers' The Northman, Adrian Lin's Return to the Erotic Thriller with Deep Water, and a special 10th anniversary minisode on Joseph Kahn's Detention. Oh, and for its 25th anniversary, we will have an audio commentary on Anaconda. Yes, God. Ah, uh, baby bird, it is time. That's not a little bit perfect, my little baby bird. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> Joe, <laughs> what are we talking about next week? And oh, my God. <laughs> so this is a hard left turn. After two weeks of moody, beautiful vampire films, we are hitting Hollywood, Trace. We're going to go into film noir animation territory. I'm feeling a little Robert Zemeckis love, so we're going to talk about who framed Roger Rabbit. <sighs> Joe, mm-hmm. I haven't seen this movie since I was a child because uh-huh. this movie scared the shit out of me when I was a child. Oh my god. Yes. You know how I am with weird animation mm-hmm. when it's like claymation stop motion. I feel similarly about combining animation with live action. So Interesting. I'm interested to see how I feel about this movie with like 25 years of separation (laughs) yeah this was a childhood mainstay i watch this movie all the time i fucking love it and i'm so eager to revisit christopher lloyd's drag performance as judge (laughs) doom and who can forget kathleen turner's vampy jessica rabbit oh my god i fell in love with a voice as like a six-year-old boy (laughs) but until next week everyone we can cross out let the right one in Indeed, and cross out horror queers. (laughs) 